Welcome once again to Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. This is episode 6. I'm your host, Ray Russell. Joining me, Steve Ekstat. Steve, we're in the middle of December. We're, we're a week and a half away from Christmas. Time flies, man. 2020's been one hell of a year, and I'm glad it's coming to an end. Christmas is the best time of year, so I'm pretty excited right now. Yeah, my wife's uh, been driving me crazy with these Hallmark Christmas movies. Uh, they'll be coming to an end here soon, but I, I feel like I've seen enough to last me a lifetime. Uh, but <laughs> I haven't even gotten—I haven't even gotten to my Christmas my my Christmas movies yet. You know, I got a, maybe a half dozen or so. I try to get in every year, and I haven't even gotten to mine yet because she's taken over the living room TV so damn much. Yeah, <laughs> it's been hard yeah. to get them in. As long as I get Home Alone in, I'm good. As long as I yeah. get Home Alone. Yeah, I'm a Home Alone guy, but I'm I'm a old 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 school guy too. I like a couple of the early versions of A Christmas Carol. I try to get those in every year, and uh, yeah, definitely Home Alone though. But my kids make sure we get that in every year. If if they yeah, miss my come, son loves Home Alone. <laughs> if we if we miss come and get me your horse's ass, there's a problem in this house. I kind of like Jingle All the Way too with Arnold. Arnold. Yeah, those aren't bad. That one's not bad either. Put the cookie my down. <laughs> my son usually gets in a movie kick and. He'll watch all the Home Alones, and I try to get him on Jingle All the Way. Christmas Vacation, I'm good. Yeah, those are uh, definitely on my list. And, uh, yeah, maybe by next week I'll have an update. Maybe I'll have, I'll cram some of my movies in. seems like every year I, I make it a habit, and it's Christmas Eve by the time I'm, I'm trying to watch them. And by the time I'm halfway through the movies, it's already Christmas or past Christmas, and I, it's just not the same anymore. But, yeah, I need to get those in. Christmas Story. I, I'm a pretty simple guy. My wife likes every single movie they put out on Hallmark, so it's a little hard. I don't even know how they make that many movies. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I didn't mean to get off topic, but we do that from now and now and then and, and with the holiday season upon us. It's just uh, We didn't get a chance to speak before we started recording, so we're kind of doing our pre-recording conversation now for, for those that are listening. But I know people like that kind of thing. They like to get to know the real us, so that's, <laughs> that's where our mindset is Absolutely. as far as Christmas movies go. We're going to get going this week, and this is uh, a fun couple of weeks of TV, and I'm probably going to say that every week. No, that's not true, because there's some there's some really crap shows from time to time. But this week, there's some interesting stuff going on. And we're in November of 1995, so it's sweeps time here in, in 1995 for Monday Night Raw and Monday Nitro. And they try some things, and we're going to get to those things that they try as we uh, head through this, this episode of the uh, Monday Warfare. And uh, quick notes real quick, though. I wanted to talk about Sabu, who finished up, unbeknownst to probably WCW and him, maybe, uh, at Halloween Havoc 95. Sabu wound up returning to ECW for the November to Remember on November the 18th. Sabu had apparently been working with WCW, although he had never signed the contract that was offered to him. Uh, WCW had been upset with Sabu for numerous reasons, such as him uh, brawling outside of the ring more than they wanted. (laughs) Go figure. And uh, supposedly going longer than scheduled in some of his television matches, which bewildered me because I don't remember his matches going more than three or four minutes. So if he was going longer than he was supposed to, kudos for him to getting in that whole three or four minutes of action there. Right? Jeez. Yeah. In addition to that, you know, the Sheik wasn't supposed to throw the fireball during the Halloween Havoc paper. He, threw, he went into business for himself, threw the fireball in JL's face uh, at, the, at the end of the match at Halloween Havoc between uh, Jerry Lynn and Sabu. And you can you can tell kind of that that wasn't planned because he did it out of nowhere. And Shiki, for his age, kind of took off pretty fast. So I guess Sabu was unhappy with uh, being put in this mid card. You know, they really didn't have anything for him. It was kind of like in that 
lumped in there with Guerrero. Nothing getting wrong with lumped in with Guerrero and Malenko and things like that. But as you pointed out several times now, they just don't seem to know what to do with the guys. And Sabu was kind of in that boat with those guys, and he wasn't used to that. So I guess it was just a, a matter of Sabu trying to keep it real, man. And he, he told WCW goodbye, and I think he had mentioned he had gotten fired. Eric Bischoff went on his podcast, and we've talked about that already. Uh, Bischoff denied those uh, claims, though. He said they never fired Sabu. And uh, I tend to you know sway with Eric in this instance. Why, why would he lie about Sabu, like we said on last episode? Yeah. Yeah, but you guys should go check out that Halloween Havoc. We did that on a watch-along. It's part of the all-access tier over at our Patreon site, patreon.com slash WrestleCopia. We'll probably be knocking out a few more of these pay-per-views here in the 95-96 era to go along with the uh, Monday Monday Warfare program. So that should be fun. But like I said, it's it's uh, sweeps time, and uh, we're moving into the middle of November now. It's November 13th weekend, and uh, we're going to kick things off with WCW Monday Nitro. It's November 13th, but this is actually the first episode of Nitro that was taped. And this was recorded last Monday, along with the November 6th show. So there were two episodes of Nitro shot on the same night. The weird thing is, the November 13th episode, the one we're recording right now, we're reviewing right now, was actually recorded prior to the November 6th episode, which actually aired live last week. So we got a couple of weird things going on on this episode that I can't wait to get to and discuss with you. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. Definitely weird taping the week after before. <laughs> so I'm sure there's a lot of confused fans and, and things like that to what's going on. But we'll, we'll get to that when we get to this show. Yeah, and so we're still in Jacksonville, Florida at the Coliseum. November 6th was when this was taped. We have uh, 9,500 fans in there. It's a pretty stacked crowd, uh, but only 3,500 paid. So only about a third actually paid. They papered nearly two-thirds of the arena. Insane. Show opens with Eric Bischoff, making sure to note, and I caught this immediately, he kicked off the show saying, this is November 13th, and uh, even kind of mentioned the angles that were shot later on on November 6th for the November 6th show, talking about Nick Lambros coming out. He puts over the World War Three stipulation with the belt had been vacated, and now it's up for grabs at World War Three. I felt like Bischoff was doing this in a way to kind of remind Heenan and Mongo as to where we're supposed to be right now, and specifically Mongo, where we're supposed to be right now so there's no flubs or botches on commentary here. Uh, but it seems like all Mongo cares about is Pepe, his dog, in a Superman cape. But uh, it was just really, it really stuck out to me because Bischoff doesn't really claim, uh, you know, quote what what the date is. And, and the first thing he says is, it's November 13th. So I, I don't know if you caught any of that in the opening monologue. I didn't pick up on it, but it, it almost like you said, it's just to maybe get it out there before he forgets, before Mongo forgets, before Enan forgets, just get it all out there that way. They know they got it right on the first take, and if something happens later on, so be it. They just, I'm sure he just wanted to get that information out just so he didn't forget. Right. Yeah, it was it was a good uh, good way to make sure that he puts that stamp there to get it in everybody's memory as we go. Remember, guys, this is the 13th. It, it was, I, I wasn't really trying to rib Bischoff for doing it, but it was just very noticeable to me, I guess is why I pointed yeah. it out. And we kicked the show off with a promo from Hulk Hogan. Oh, <laughs> but this isn't any ordinary... Well, you know something, Mean Gene promo. No, no, this is a uh, pre-tape. I'm not sure where he's at, in some creepy cave somewhere over in 
in Europe, possibly. I'm not really sure what's going on, but <laughs> he might be with some druids or, or, or monks or something. I'm not really sure where he's at, but he's rocking a black hood and a Phantom of the Opera-esque black mask over half of his face. And he's armed with a giant sword. What did you think of this look for Hulk Hogan? I don't honestly. I don't think he knows what he, where he was at uh, when he's cutting this promo. It, it's uh, his idea of what a bad guy was without going heel. <laughs> I'm assuming this is it. And wow, I remember this vaguely from like when I first watched it, and then I've rewatched Nitro a few times, so I I, I knew this was coming. But it gets cheesier and cheesier and crappier and crappier each time I see it, and uh, this is no different. This was terrible. Yeah, obviously Hogan's trying to channel his inner dark side to compete with the Dungeon of Doom. Ever since he lost that mustache, he's lost the red and yellow, brother. I wish he'd just grow the mustache back. It's as simple as that. But unfortunately, <laughs> we have Hulk Hogan out here playing Phantom of the Opera. And he talks about uh, his buddy, Randy Savage. Apparently Macho Man will be on the show tonight to take on Ming. I was really upset to hear that. I was hoping he would take off a little more time than one or two weeks here and and Ming of all people it's just it feels like it's an unnecessary match it's not a title match it's not the giant it's just Haku and no offense to Haku but this just feels like a meaningless match but obviously they're they're trying to lead to something later in the uh, later on during that that encounter and then uh, also Hogan points out Sting who's also been his friend since he's arrived here in WCW he's not so sure now if Sting is his friend or his foe and that'll play out here over the next week or so as we uh, get ready for next week's episode of Monday Nitro. And it's straight to the ring for Macho Man Randy Savage, taking on the caped, masked Ming with Kevin Sullivan by his side. And Randy Savage sneaks attacks him from behind to start off the matches. Music plays Ming's way to hear him Savage out of the crowd. And my first thought was, didn't Johnny B. Bad just do something similar to this at Halloween Havoc? So this didn't feel very uh, authentic or original by Savage attacking Ming from behind, but Macho on top of Ming. Savage comes off the top rope, tries a double axe handle, Ming takes over. Ming works on Savage's injured arm for the duration of the match. Finally, he uh, Ming winds up missing a diving headbutt off the top rope, and Savage tosses Haku into Kevin Sullivan on the apron and drops the big elbow for the win. Match goes four minutes and 50 seconds. What did you think of Savage being put out here to wrestle uh, Haku before we get into the aftermatch, aftermath? Uh, I thought he looked better. Um, he didn't have his arm bandaged up. It was moving better. I think that week off is, was needed. Uh, he could have used more, obviously. I thought he looked a lot better than he has in the last three or four weeks, uh, including the pay-per-view. So there's an upgrade there. Um, but yeah, What's that? nothing matched. It's kind of boring. What is that? What is that? Shark attack. That's what Bobby Heenan says. Shark attack. It's shark to the ring. And the shark attacks Randy Savage. And Lex Luger soon follows. And it's a beatdown on Macho Man. And I thought it was hilarious. Did you hear Bobby Heenan trying to sell it? Shark attack. Shark attack. And I definitely did. <laughs> and boy, Bobby Heenan will try to put anything over. And uh, he's a trooper, man. Uh, and Lex Luger comes out after Shark does the damage. Lex Luger comes out and takes over on Randy Savage and posts his uh, bad arm and then rams it into the, the ring post and the uh, steel steps and 
basically, I guess this was between Ming working over the arm and then Luger doing this. They sold it pretty good. Savage was selling his arm pretty bad by the time they went to commercial break. The Meltz claims that Savage was supposed to use this angle as a reason to take time off and have his torn tricep repaired in surgery. Uh, however, we'll see that that doesn't actually happen because uh, Savage just wasn't <laughs> gung ho to have or to take three months off. And, uh, you know, you can't really blame him. I know a lot of guys are afraid of losing their spots. And uh, three months off is a long time, especially for someone like Savage who liked to take no time off. What do you think of the angle? And how did you feel? Do you think it was a wise call? Do you think Savage would have lost his spot being the macho man in this three-month period? No, I don't, I don't think he would have lost his spot. But um, three months is a long time. And I feel like with the Nitro just kicking off, they're at war with WWF, and it's early on. And the ratings have kind of been fluctuating. They win some, they lose some, and they've kind of been flat and steady. So he probably thinks that I need to be a team player, ride this out, and um, do what I can to assist in us fighting Vince. Because from everything I've heard about Macho Man, when he left the WWF at the end of 94, WCW didn't realize – what they got because he had a massive chip on his shoulder to go out and prove to Vince McMahon that he still had plenty left in the tank and that it wasn't, wasn't time for him to sit at the commentary's table. And so, and being known macho the way he's portrayed, I'm sure even a year later, he was still wanting to stick it to Vince and show him taking any time off would diminish that in his mind, I'm sure. So I understand completely why he did it. Probably wasn't the wisest decision in the world, but, it's the macho man and it is what it is. I'm fine with whatever he decides. Yeah. And I mean, he did look better here on this episode of nitro than he has the last couple of times we've seen him. But at the same time, I don't know, man, I just uh, torn triceps, a torn tricep. Even if he had just uh, skipped the surgery and taken a few more weeks off, uh, returned even in a couple more weeks, returned at the pay-per-view even world war three. I, I just, I don't yes. know, man, he was, he was back really fast. I'll like, take one week off. But that's all I'm doing. Yeah, it's just it's crazy too. They know all this and they still do what they do at the pay per view. So, I mean, who, whose call is it? I, do you think he knew ahead of time? I don't think going to happen at the er, from or all accounts. Bishop even knew. Well, I think from all accounts, at the very least, this this whole thing wasn't even planned until after Halloween Havoc, from my understanding. So, so he it tore was his just, tricep, and they told him that, hey, you're getting the belt at the pay-per-view, I mean, I'm not taking off either. I'm getting the title. Yeah. That's uh so, I mean, if, if, if he knew that, then there's no way he's going to take it off. Are you crazy? I don't think many people would hell. We, he wrestled with the staff infection infection at WrestleMania five. So he's I'm a thinking, tough dude, but I'm thinking mania five was a bigger payday. than world war. Well, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. But I mean, I don't know. Many people are going to turn down a title match or a title run no matter how long or short it is over an injury in 1995. Now 2020 is different. We've seen it a few right. times, but hangnail um, now. Well, I mean, look what happened to cross there and down in NXT wins the belt and forfeits it the next day. So it happens, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I'd like to know the timeline there when macho knew that he was getting the belt at world war three. Yeah. That that's, I think that's the key to the whole, that's the whole key. That's the key to the puzzle. Should I or shouldn't I? Uh huh. Right there. Gotta figure it out. Do the thing. Get it done. Right there. Uh huh. Like it. Like it, Steve. You know your shit. (laughs) 
Let's go ask Bischoff. We'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> we move on with Nitro. It's Chris Benoit taking on Kensuke Sasaki. And as Chris Benoit is coming down to ringside, I don't know when this was mentioned. I don't know if they dropped this on Saturday night and we missed it. But out of nowhere, Eric Bischoff just refers to Benoit as the newest member of the Fourth Horseman or the Four Horsemen. I just thought to myself, this is the first time I'm hearing it. So what fanfare? Chris Benoit gets here as the fourth member of the Horsemen. Three of them are aligned at the pay-per-view, Halloween Havoc, and then Benoit just kind of slid in there as the fourth one. I'm not really sure when this was initially announced, but as far as what we've been watching, which is the pay-per-views and the Nitros, this is the first I'm hearing of it. Yeah, I don't recall hearing it other than this. So, yeah, you think if you're trying to rebuild the Horsemen and you do that big angle at the pay-per-view, then the getting the fourth member... I thought it would. You figured it'd be played up way more than this, and um, hinted at maybe for a few weeks, and then uh, what better way to do it than inside the four man, you know, the three ring, sixty man battle where I think they could have done it there and have been a lot better. Uh, they could have aligned together in the ring and took a lot of people out. Yeah, and unless and I kind mi- of acknowledge him there, but yeah, and unless I missed something on Saturday night, where if they if they had a horseman promo and they welcomed Benoit in, then disregard everything I'm saying. But if they didn't. This is a really crummy way to introduce Benoit as the fourth horseman because he doesn't even have, there's no Flair, Arn, or Pillman out here to congratulate him or welcome him or corner him or explain it. It's just Eric Bischoff doing it on yeah. doing it during commentary. Uh, and they could have at least said, um, you know, on Saturday night, we all saw what happened with Arn and whoever, and Benoit became a fourth member, but they just said the newest member of the horseman. Like, yeah. how did it happen? They don't even explain it. So, yeah. that well, on I thought, their end. I thought this match was really good for what it was. Great stuff back and forth. Very snug. Benoit winds up winning with a rolling German, hits a couple Germans and into a dragon suplex for the pinfall in two minutes and 38 seconds. Benoit gets the win over Sasaki here from New Japan. This felt like a match that it was like two and a half minutes of a 15-minute match, (laughs) like a, a New Japan style match. I thought it was really, really good, but it was also really, really short. Yeah. And just again, during commentary, I don't know if you picked up on it, but Bischoff was too busy talking about the NFL instead of this match. Like, it just feels like he really does not give a shit about this mid card thing that he's building up. Yeah, and I've got notes on that too for a few other matches as well. So it's just, it's unfortunate. It's like if you're not Hogan, Savage, and in that echelon, it, Bischoff really doesn't seem to care. And that's unfortunate because he, he's the one running the company. If this was just an announcer, yeah. that's another thing. If Tony Schiavone, which Tony would never do that, Tony was a very good now he got it any whoever was in the ring, he was he was getting them over. But to have the guy that's running the company, not necessarily the booker, but he's running the company, uh basically talk about anything and everything other than what's you know, what you're doing in the ring, that's gotta be very disheartening as a talent. Yeah, absolutely. And he signed these guys for a reason. I mean he, he can see talent, it's just pushing and establishing that talent that he has a problem with. Yeah. This week on WCW Saturday Night, Chris Benoit versus Eddie Guerrero. I think that's the third time since they've been in here. I'm not complaining. Uh, maybe somebody should lump yeah. together all those matches. I'd be curious to see see how many times they wrestled here in the first six months to a year they were here in WCW. Also, Sting battles Bunkhouse Buck. Now, there's one I'd love to get my hands on. I'll have to go back and see what happens there. I wonder what the finish of that match was. And Dean Malenko in singles competition this week on WCW. Saturday night. And it's back to the ring for a, a really cool match. TV champion Johnny B. Bad, he's a babyface, 
taking on another baby face, Eddie Guerrero. And I've noticed Eddie's on Nitro here almost, it seems like every week. And I wonder if it's by coincidence or if they actually want to do something with them. They just don't know what they want to do with them. And so they're keeping them familiar with the fans. Yeah, I think Eddie's kind of the chosen one out of the three. You know, Malenko, Benoit, and Eddie, uh, they kind of get lumped together here. It just feels like he's the chosen one. He's the one that they, like you said, he's prominent on every week's show. He's there. They put him over to a degree. They don't let him get too over, but they put him over a little bit, especially Heenan. Heenan does his best to try to stay on task, but when Bischoff and Mongo are just going on their tangents, you're kind of forced to go that way. Um, but Heenan does a pretty solid job of trying to get these guys over with just like yelling at moves. You know, they do a German and he's like, oh, that like real loud to emphasize the things like that. But yeah, this does feel like Eddie's the one that they picked out of the bunch to actually push and do something with, but they just don't know what to do. And to further elaborate on that whole thing you mentioned in the last match where Bischoff's not really paying attention to the mid card guys here during this match, Mongo points out at the beginning of the start of the match. He asks where the confetti gun is for Johnny B. Bad, where the bad blaster is. Eric says he doesn't know. To which Bobby Heenan points out, DDP stole it. I'm just like, he's fucking been using it. He used it at the pay-per-view. He's used it since the pay-per-view. You run the company. You, you don't know how to answer it. Like, so Mongo notices it's missing. So at least Mongo's got to step up on Eric here because Eric doesn't even know what the, what the hell he's talking about. Heenan knows what happened. Yeah and Bischoff's just like completely aloof to the entire situation. So it shows you how close he's paying attention to the storyline between DDP and Johnny B. Yeah. Bad. Meltzer even mentioned, I was reading the observer and the Meltz was talking about how Bischoff's commentary has gotten better. I don't know which week it was for. I don't know if it's for this week or next week episode, like the 20th or the 13th, but he was talking about it and saying, uh, he's getting better than Vince. What a maneuver McMahon. And I'm just like, he did the front leg round kick in the in the main match with just boots to the chest, and or whatever <laughs> the hell it is, back leg front kick, whatever yeah. I don't know, but it's all he's just booting him in the chest, yeah, and he's all over the place, and he he has no idea that what's going on. He'd much rather talk about the main event feuds and mid card matches. That's good to a point, but when the action starts getting really good, you should just focus on the action. And Bischoff hasn't started doing that yet. I don't think I don't know if he ever does. Right. Um, that doesn't really come into play until Tony, but that was one of my biggest knocks on WCW in general is from their, for their entire existence of the Nitro run, it just felt like all they cared about was the main event matches and nothing underneath mattered. Uh, right. It's always talk about the NWO, always talk about Hogan, always talking about whatever is going on up top. And these guys at the, be the beginning and middle had, they didn't care at all. And it, it's glaring. It's very noticeable. Yeah, that's real. That's really unfortunate. You know, I mean, the last several years, last two, three years of the company, I would tune out during the main event, maybe the final two matches on the pay-per-views. Uh, I'd seen everything I wanted to see. I saw my Jericho matches. I saw my cruiserweight matches. I saw my Malenko or whoever match. I saw the U.S. heavyweight, maybe, you know, when Malenko was involved in that and all these other guys. I saw all the good wrestling. And then we got to, you know, the guys that were kind of immobile, uh, Holland Nash, Scott Steiner, guys like that. And I would tune out and the TV would remain on, but my back would almost be to the TV at that point. I'd just be moving on to something else. And then, you know, when the show ended, I'd press stop on my, on my uh, VCR. <laughs> that was pretty much it. So there's a lot of pay-per-view <laughs> matches in those last few years that I probably don't really, I probably didn't see a whole lot of them. The, the, the whole matches anyway. 
just uh, not very good stuff. So it's unfortunate that they kind of overlook, or especially Eric, uh, but they overlook a lot of the, the important stuff on the undercard. We get more of that right here. As, as the match gets going and Eddie and Johnny B. Bad shake hands, they're both baby faces, they, they start wrestling, they're having a good, good back-and-forth match, Eric starts questioning Bobby Heenan about the meetings Bobby's been having with Sonny Ono, who's, he's not Sonny Ono yet, he doesn't have a name yet, and all of that nonsense going on with WCW Pro and whatever the hell, whatever the, hell the money exchange was between Ono and Heenan. So that's what we have during commentary, at least for a part of this match, instead of, you know, focus on this match, which is not only two up-and-coming baby faces. I mean, Johnny B. Bad's more than up-and-coming at this point, if you ask me. He's also the TV champion. And, and you talked about the back leg, round kick, front leg, ass kick, and things of that nature. I, I pointed out, I think, on the last episode, Eric starts using this damned, uh, oh, he hit the deck, and he hit the deck hard. And I know he says it at World War Three. I remember that when somebody gets eliminated. And it drives me nuts because he says it every week. He says it again here. Eddie gets knocked to the floor. And inadvertently takes a bump to the floor, and, and once again, Eric, oh, he hit the deck hard. Is there any other way to hit the deck? He hit the deck hard. It just sounds so stupid. And, uh, yeah, it does. We move into the closing moments of the match. Johnny B. Bad nails the somersault planche to the floor. Things get punchy between the two baby faces. They get a little uh, competitive here, some competitive spirit. Two baby faces duking it out, trading some fists, and I thought it was kind of funny because Eddie was holding his own, trading punches, and wasn't Johnny B. Bad's gimmick at one point? You know, and, and not even a gimmick. He was like, you know, I don't know if he was Golden Gloves champion, but I know he was a, a sparring partner for some, you know, professional boxers and things. So uh, I thought it was kind of funny that Eddie was holding his own in there. But, uh, yeah, we got the, the two baby faces kind of breaking down, so to speak, and uh, they collide in a double body block. They crash into each other. The clock starts counting down. It's obvious we're not going to get a pinfall. And they continue to trade punches as time expires. Match really only goes just over nine minutes, but they call it a 10-minute draw due to TV time. Referee Randy Anderson tries to separate them post-match. Eventually, the guys settle down. They, they separate. Bad retains the belt. Eddie Guerrero, the challenger, winds up extending his hand first. They shake hands. They hug. Eddie raises Johnny B. Bad's hand as the champ. Bobby Heenan put this match over. and These are two baby faces. So instead of saying, oh, this is sickening, he puts it over. He says, wow, what a match. What a great wrestling match. So Bobby was at a stage in his career where he was just putting over the wrestling now. And I know he was still siding with heels a lot more than faces, but in, in instances like this, it felt like he was really trying to get over all these young talents. It almost felt like, too, when he put the match over, it was just like, he doesn't care. Like, I don't care if these guys are good. It's It was a great match. He's, like, yeah. getting popped by the boys, like, them putting on a good match, and it's believable. Like, he sounds genuine, and he yeah, really dude. enjoyed the match, and that's what he's trying to convey. And it just felt natural and, and authentic. I don't know if he meant to do it, but when you watch a 10-minute match like that, yeah, you're going to be like, damn, that was a good match. And heel or not, it doesn't matter. You're gonna, He's going to put it over because that's his job. And out of the three, he's definitely the best as far as trying to get these guys over. He seems to be the only one that consistently tries to do it. And I can't either speak Either as a heel for, or a face. Yeah, and I can't speak for Bobby, obviously. But – in my mind, it almost feels like he feels so bad for the way they're neglected yeah. on commentary during the match that he has to feel like he has to step up and do something for them in order to help try to get them over instead of just play the Bobby Heenan character because he's sitting here with these two guys. Now, you know Mongo ain't getting anybody over, and Eric's ignoring the matches, so it's like Bobby been in the business so long, he's realizing 
what are you doing? You're you're doing you know you're doing nothing with this talent in the ring right here. I, leave it up to me, I guess, to try to do something for these guys. It's the way it comes off to me anyway. Yeah, and the best part of this match on commentary, Bischoff is lecturing Mongo and Hina to pay attention to the match. Yeah, there's a yeah. there's a section there like y'all, you guys need to pay attention essentially, and I'm just like, take heed to what you're saying, buddy. Do it yourself because you're the least you're the person paying attention the least. Great job by Heenan. If it wasn't for him, I could just imagine how terrible these dudes felt. And we all know how Heenan felt about his la- his run here. So I can I can see what you're saying. I bet you that is probably more along the lines of what's accurate. Yeah, before Bobby was basically forced into st- st- stop caring. We continue on. It's promo time. Mean Gene Okerlund in the ring with Jimmy Hart, Kevin Sullivan, and the Giant. Giant is without belt, by the way. Now, keep in mind, this episode on the 13th here was recorded before the episode that aired last week. They talk about Giant being stripped of the title. He doesn't come to the ring with the title. They announce the title is held up, and uh, it will be determined the new champion at World War III during the 60-man Battle Royal. All this makes sense. An excellent promo, not an excellent promo, but a paint-by-numbers promo of what you need to say, right, to get over your your World War III pay-per-view. One issue. This was taped in the ring, in front of the fans, out loud, an hour before they strip him of the belt in front of the same crowd. There's no excuse for this whatsoever. <laughs> I can't imagine what these fans were thinking. Oh, my God. Yeah, dude, I'd be, like, lost. And I, I can't remember. There's a segment somewhere. I want to say it was this one. Let me I, I, it's somewhere in one of these, like you can look in the back of the crowd and there's a guy in like a red Hulk Hogan, a kid in a red Hulk Hogan shirt or something, or it might be during the the sting interview. But if you look at, yeah, I think it's in the sting interview. So I can talk about it then, but there's a kid in the stands that just kind of looks over. He's like, what the hell is he talking about? Right. So like uh, if a kid, like a 12, 13 year old kid is picking up on this, just imagine what the adults in the building are thinking. Like, wait, when the hell did he get stripped? What the heck's going on? And then what if you start processing this where you're sitting there? They're like, oh, they're taping this for next week. And then what we're about to watch is what's going to happen this week is live. Because you can just look at the time and see like what the heck's going on. Well, this was to go live. It's what? Eight o'clock, nine o'clock live. So if it's eight o'clock and they're doing all this shit then they know it's for the following week or something. So it's just like I would be baffled. I'd just be sitting there like, what the hell is going on? And you know what? It's, it's not even so bad that they did this right here, because if you're watching this for the first time, as this is happening before the sixth airs, before that happens, you're thinking to yourself at this point, Oh, what did I miss? Did they announce this on Saturday night? Is this something they announced in a backstage promo that we can't watch here? But when the next episode airs and I watch him walk out with the belt and get stripped of the belt, that, that is where I'm like, what in the is going on around here yeah absolutely it's like you gotta rewind it back and then you know they're leaving they're walking out the building like what the hell just happened yeah like you just totally messed up their continuity now tv is fine obviously you're not going to see it out of order it's going to be in order for you but those 9500 fans you actually had a packed house even though majority was paper you still had a packed house and you shit the bed on this one yeah, and it's not even the last time that happens in this episode. Oh, my God. We continue on with the main event of Nitro this week. It's Sting taking on Dean Malenko. Props to Dean Malenko for getting a main event slot here. 
Solid match. Malenko dominates most of it. Works Sting's leg. Sting makes the comeback, still selling his leg. He misses a Stinger splash in the corner. Malenko tries to take back over. Nails a top rope missile dropkick by Stinko Malenko. And Dean tries the Texas Cloverleaf, but Sting cradles him inside cradle for the win. Match wins something like eight or nine minutes. Sting gets the win here. Solid TV match. Something different. Somebody different for Sting in the ring. I hated that Malenko had to do the job here. I wasn't surprised that Malenko did the job here. I hated that he had to, but I liked that they gave us a completely different match. It was no longer just Sting, and he can only wrestle Flair and Arn and Hogan and Sam, you know, that that level, Luger, whatever the hell. And Malenko can only wrestle Eddie and... Alex Wright, you know, and, and, that, and those guys. So yeah. I like that they took two different guys from two different tiers of, of talent yeah. And, yeah, and had them wrestle each other. So I can't complain completely that we got something different here. Yeah, I, I really like this match. So just I feel like we're harping on the commentary too much but and just taping out of order. But my, my main note here was, like, this is a pretty sweet matchup on paper. And I was like, at least the commentary team should care because Sting's involved. So yeah. I knew Malenko was going to get a fair shake. Uh, another thing that bothered me too was Mongo. He was sounding like Malenko has no shot because he was shorter. Uh, so yeah. he had the stereotypes of a small guy can't beat a big guy. But other than that, like this is a really good match. And I felt like the crowd was popping pretty good for Sting. But they have no idea what's coming where he leaves with Luger to where you don't even know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. So it, it's one of those things. Like it kind of ruins that angle because the show that happens afterwards is taped beforehand and uh, before the angle actually goes. And then the following week is kind of squashed immediately. So you'd, it was never a chance to even tease it other than the live 11-6 show that we watched last week where he walked out with him. So that, to me, like kind of ruined the intrigue of Sting possibly going bad. Um, and like I said, we can discuss that next week when it actually comes to fruition a little bit. But yeah, th- this was a really fun match. And I like how they just let Sting roll him up with the cradle instead of flattening him, you know, with the Stinger right. splash or things and like I thought, that. They just, and I a thought sneaky it was, cradle win. Right. And I thought it was uh, really cool of Sting to give Dean so much offense since Sting knew he was doing the job. He didn't bury Malenko out there like he could have, like some of the other guys may have. And... I, I agree with you. I'm I'm happy that it ended in a cradle rather than like the scorpion. I also thought that Sting did an exceptional job selling his leg. Like he really put Malenko over like a million bucks. I really haven't seen Sting sell like that quite uh, very often, as far as even for a flare, you know, with the leg injury during the match. So yeah. it was uh, pretty good. You think Sting? I don't know. I don't. I haven't heard a lot about Sting. I don't know how he was as a company guy. Uh, from all from the look and everything, it just seems like he was a good dude and cared about others. Um, I could be way off base. I don't know, but it almost makes you wonder if Sting sees how like those guys are getting treated, and he's like, you know what, man, I'm going to do everything I can to help you because it doesn't seem like you're getting it elsewhere. This makes you wonder. Well, I think Sting hasn't forgotten where he came from, and I think he was taught some good lessons early on, and he was uh, a good enough guy to kind of continue teaching those lessons or at least following through with those things. And I think it was just a matter of, and again, I'm just speculating here. I don't know Sting or what he was thinking. It just seemed like I know I'm the one going over, and you know, so I'm going to do the best I can to sell for this guy at the very least, so that he doesn't lose, you know, any more heat than he's going to lose. Which you shouldn't really lose heat getting pinned by Sting, but uh, it just felt like Sting knew he was he was winning. Malenko was going to do the job, so I'm going to give him as much offense as I can, make him look good, which he did. It looked good, so yeah, absolutely. 
And during this match, they randomly discussed Sting versus Hulk Hogan. You heard me right, people. They randomly discussed Sting versus Hulk Hogan on free TV on Monday Nitro next week. And it's such a lackluster build to like an ultimate dream match on free TV next week on Nitro. Not a pay-per-view. Next week on Nitro, we're going to get Sting and Hogan. It's November sweeps. And they got to counteract the post-Survivor Series WWF Raw, too. So they're pulling shit out of the bag early and often here. And this, it's, I don't even know if we can get any bigger than this, but it's just so terribly built and announced and pushed. And it's, it's terrible. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, dude, I don't, I don't know. This, to me, like, you don't, I didn't realize it then, but this is kind of the downfall of wrestling in general. When you just start giving this shit away like this, and they get the stakes get even higher and higher as the years go on. Yeah. Um, they like play the Georgia Dome show. That to me, and I think Meltzer even mentions it on one in one of the observers around this time, where it says long term storyline and booking is gone. It, it's you're just throwing things at the wall and hopefully, hopefully it sticks to pop that rating. That's all that matters at this point. And um, the fact that you took a dream match, like the ultimate dream match outside mm-hmm. of like Flair and Hogan that we've been getting for like a year and a half now, of Sting and Hogan, and you don't even build to it. It's just, oh, yeah, next week Sting's fighting Hogan, like when he's coming to the aisle or something. And it's yeah. just, that's it. We get they've had some issues, but there's really never been a confrontation. It's always been Macho and Sting that's had the issue. Hogan's kind of just there. So it didn't make any sense that Hogan was in the match. So, yeah, just to give it away on free TV with no build at all. And could you imagine if people were turning the channel to see what was going on on Raw at this time? You missed out. And I'm sure they plugged it a little bit towards the end with the with the banner and things like that. But, uh, yeah, this would be something you should be hyping the entire show. Yeah. They just kind of mentioned it in passing. However, at the end of the show, we get a Sting promo in the ring. And, they, and this is where the continuity uh, police show up once again. Mean Gene asked Sting why he left with Luger last week on Nitro, which hadn't happened yet because he actually doesn't leave with Luger until the following Nitro after this, uh, which actually aired last week. So the fans are again questioning what the hell is, is Mean Gene talking about? When did Sting, Lu- when did Sting leave with Lex Luger? Uh, so this yeah, hasn't this- even happened yet. So Mean Gene's predicting he's Nostradamus here. Sting, why are you going to leave with Lex Luger on the next episode of Nitro? At least for the fans in the building. This is <laughs> this is a continuity issue. Yeah, this is this is where I noticed the kid, he's about ten rows back. He looks over at the his friend or whoever, brother, mom, dad, I don't know who he's looking at, but he, as soon as Gene said that why did you walk out with Luger last week, he looks over like like I I I didn't see that. What the heck happened? I don't I don't remember that. So it, Fans in the crowd, like it's not like now where you can do recaps and there's video walls and all that stuff where you can see everything that's going on and you don't miss anything. It's not like that here. He has no clue what's going on, and I just I feel bad for those fans in attendance. What a dumpster fire! Yeah, and that was like their first tape Nitro ever, and <laughs> we already have two major continuity issues. Uh, it's as simple as don't film these promos in the ring, or don't turn it on the live house mic. I mean, just. You could have done so many things different. Pre-tape them in the back. Yeah. All right, Steve, what's your segment of the night? You got Eddie versus B-Bad. You got Sting versus Malenko. Take your pick. Or something completely different. Uh, 
<laughs> I like Eddie and Johnny B. Bad here. Uh, I thought it was a really awesome match, great offense, a really good story being told where they kind of threw out being good guys and started throwing the hands and things like that. The draw did stink, but it left you wanting to see more, and I, I think that's what they wanted to accomplish, even if it doesn't go anywhere. Um, but, yeah, really, really good match, and I thought it elevated both guys just a little bit more than what they were coming in. Yeah, I went with the same match, Eddie and Bad, and, and there was nothing really wrong with the Sting and Malenko match. It was more of a, a groundwork-type match for, for most of it, and I think both matches went about nine minutes, so they had about equal time, which is a lot of time. Uh, on the show dedicated to these two matches, which left Chris Benoit and Sasaki all but two and a half minutes there. Yeah, so I had to go with Eddie and Bad. There was just more action. I found it more entertaining, I guess. And so I agree with you. I think it was uh, definitely a fun match. I thought they did a really good job being both baby faces out there and keeping it interesting because, you know, other than like Hogan and Warrior, it's a uh, very hit or miss uh, when you got two babies out there working each other. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they just told the classic story, so. Good job. We head over to the USA Network and WWF Raw for November 13th, and this was taped way back on October 23rd. This is the end of a four-hour taping of WWF Monday Night Raw, so we're still in Brandon, Manitoba, Canada, and Vince has been attending house shows, according to the Melts, and Vince doesn't normally attend house shows, only in Madison Square Garden, so Vince is kind of moving around, having private meetings with some of the guys. He's watching the shows, he, the, the house shows, he wants to see what's going on. Why is attendance down? Why are ticket sales down? Why are ratings down? Why are pay-per-view buys down? And so uh, it's kind of weird. I mean, that's kind of panic mode a little bit when your boss who's never, you know, <laughs> visited the house shows is, is popping up to, to check in on you. It's got to be nerve wracking. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, he's there for a reason and it's probably not good. Um, like you said, if the boss is coming to town, that's a bad time. This is the go-home show to the Survivor Series, and we get news that Razor and the 1-2-3 Kid had several altercations during the World Tour de Force house show events the previous weekend, and those incidents have caused the WWF interim president, Gorilla Monsoon, to change the title match between Razor defending against uh, Psycho Sid here tonight with 1-2-3 Kid as the referee. The match will now be a non-title match. So even Gorilla doesn't seem to trust the 1-2-3 kid here. Razor seems to be the only one on board uh, with his buddy, Mr. Waltman. I got to ask you. So if you read The Observer, mm -hmm. the melts get pretty shitty with, like, false advertisement and yeah. overboard and things like that. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, this was billed as an IC title match. The previous like, week. Pretty much throughout, like, the whole week leading up. Mm -hmm. And even the weekend shows, they didn't fix it. And then they just fixed it at the beginning of Raw. Do you have a problem with this, or is this just Meltzer being Meltzer? I believe that you're 100% correct, and he is, uh, I don't know, I don't, I don't really follow the Observer now like I did with the older uh, years, but uh, he was absolutely anal with this type of stuff. I mean, over the top, it was like he just looked for these things sometimes just to bitch about it, even if it wasn't like a major deal. In this instance, I don't have an issue with him fixing it, because at least they fixed it and it made sense. I have an issue with it because I'm just questioning why the plan was all along, or at least in the short term here was, was to give Sid the belt here. So he was still supposed to win. It wasn't that they switched it because other plans changed. It was because the click got into Vince's head and said, no, let's just keep the belt on razor. And so that's basically what happens here. Sid was supposed to get the belt. So the title change 
or the non-title match that it was changed to really happened because booking plans changed. So Sig kind of got screwed out of all of this. And that's where my issue lies. Not necessarily with the card subject to change. I mean, shit happens. I'm not a big fan of it. I I think Dave needs to pick his battles more closely when, when it comes to bitching about this kind of stuff. But he does it all the time. Yeah. He does it every time. time. It's not the hill I want to die on necessarily here in this particular match, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree to an extent, but I agree more so because of the politics involved in this particular change on the show. Uh, I was just curious there. And it's going to probably get even worse as we get through the rest of this show. Oh, it does. Not- I know I know I've got some notes here. If it's not this episode, it's the next episode, but I've got I've got some notes. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> and we kick off the show with another click member. It's Triple H, Hunter Hearst Helmsley taking on H O G. That's Henry O. Godwin. The O stands for Orpheus. Did you know that, Steve? I learned that in a WWF magazine. I did not. That's some information I didn't really think I needed to know, but I'm glad I know it. <laughs> to be honest with you, dude, I didn't realize it was hog and pig until like maybe five or six years ago. I never picked up on it as a kid. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I they never did. They kind of hammered that in on uh, Henry when he first came. Uh, so that's kind of how I got that one. I think that's how I picked up on, on Phineas so quick because I knew Henry was hog. So well, they just kept on calling him a hog farmer. So I just figured yeah. he's a hog farmer. I didn't think yeah. anything of it. <laughs> but yeah. So Good last stuff. week, last week Helmsley slapped Henry Godwin, and so this week he attacks Henry Godwin on the floor. And Triple H doesn't want any, uh, doesn't want to be near Henry Godwin, or at least near his slap bucket. He's wanting to do the cologne gimmick and all these things like that. So Henry Godwin takes it upon himself to slap himself. He climbs up the stairs, grabs the slap bucket. It looks like he might try to get in the ring and slap Triple H, but no, instead, he takes the bucket and proceeds to dump it over his own head. Hey, man, he's a hog farmer. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but great psychology here with a slap bucket. You don't hear that sentence very often, but it made sense storyline-wise. You have this uh, snobby guy who doesn't want to be near filth or or, Henry Godwin, for that matter. So what am I going to do? I'm not going to slap you with this. I'm going to slap me with this. And uh, it, Triple H basically runs away, slips in the slop on the way out. It kind of looked realistic, the sl- slip. So uh, great bump by Triple H on the outside as he's running away, and he he runs out of the arena. Basically, this is a double countout. It's a nothing match. It's really not even a match. It goes a minute and a half, double countout. But really, this is just an angle to further everything to the next in your house. I love this. Uh, we talked about it on the last episode, how this is – I know it's not going to draw – it's it's just a mid-card feud to have, kind of just have something there that leads to a pay-per-view match. But uh, this was great. Uh, this is a perfect, you know, dynamic of dirty versus clean, that sort of deal, a rich snob versus a good old-fashioned farmer type guy. And uh, he, like you said, that back bump on the slip was awesome. Him slopping himself, you didn't expect it because that shit's pretty disgusting. <laughs> but he did it anyway. I thought it was great. I really love this. It's just so simple, but effective. I thought. Yeah. And I figure since he dumped it on himself, that this is one of the cleaner buckets of slop because the story goes, depending on how much Henry liked you, it depends. That's that depended on what was in the slop bucket. And um, just go ask Sonny. Uh, what yeah. was in her slop bucket. Woo oh doggy. <laughs> yeah. No doubt about it. And it's time for well, handsome doc and slam jam for the survivor series. 
basically run down the card. It's, it's this Sunday. So that makes sense. Thank you, Doc. And uh, we get a Shawn Michaels video package here. It's basically a promo of Shawn Michaels talking about Shawn Michaels while they show random clips of him being Shawn Michaels. What did you think of that one? Uh, it was pretty good. He's just talking about how he goes out there and does it, leaves it out. He wants people to leave thinking that Shawn Michaels gave him a show and entertained him after they spent their hard-earned money. It, it was a good good way to get him over a little bit. It was, I didn't have a problem with it, and I'm not the biggest Shawn Michaels fan, so it was pretty good. Yeah, I just didn't understand the point of it. I thought it was a good video package, but I just didn't understand the point of it. He wasn't returning. He wasn't getting uh you know getting elevated i mean he was Shawn michaels so it just seemed odd that we're getting this package reminding us that Shawn michaels is Shawn michaels when we've seen him every week it's almost as if they're planning for something or it's either that or they're just taking it you know him getting beat up and having to strip the title and getting stripped of the title and things like that to where hey he's going through a rough time but this is the Shawn michaels that we know and love don't forget about it that type of deal that's kind of where it seems like it's going but yeah, it was just awkward. We get Ahmed Johnson in his very first televised match here in the WWF, taking on Jake Steele. And we're coming off the slam heard round the world. Ahmed Johnson slammed Yokozuna, and now he's out here in a squash match against Jake Steele, who is a pretty stocky for a job guy, but he's no Ahmed Johnson. Uh, Jake actually plays a heel job guy here. He won't shake Ahmed's hand. He attacks Ahmed. He actually punches Ahmed in the face. I'll give him, I'll give him credit. Look right at him in the face and just, jacked his jaw of course ahmed doesn't sell it however and he <laughs> proceeds to get in uh, angry ahmed <laughs> he, medieval ahmed as he as he like to talk about and uh during the match so we get a insert promo from Shawn michaels he talks the wild card match how he finally has someone he can trust and ahmed johnson on his team because of course i think their other partners are what sid and, and bulldog so yeah it's two yeah. heels and two faces there and so ahmed's basically the only guy sean can rely on here going into the wild card match. We also learned next week on Raw, it's Shawn Michaels taking on Owen Hart. Finish of the match, sees Ahmed nail a spine buster followed by a tiger bomb, which has yet to be renamed the Pearl River Plunge. Ahmed gets the win in about two and a half minutes. What'd you think of Ahmed out here? He looked good. I like how they gave Jake the opportunity to be a little heel, heelish there and not just get his ass kicked. They gave him a little bit, and uh, I thought it enhanced Ahmed a little bit more than just a normal squash, so... Two and a half minutes are pretty entertaining. Following the match, Vince McMahon's ringside, he speaks with Ahmed Johnson about the Survivor Series, I think. I'm not 100% sure what Ahmed said. Um, I did pick up a sentence. He said something like, Don't come to the ring, high-stepping G, or I'm going to break you off something proper. And then Vince is like, All right, yeah, I love that jive talking, yeah. And that was <laughs> pretty much the, something like that, I think, is how the promo went. And so that's it for the, you know, Ahmed Johnson heading to the Survivor Series. Yeah. He, man, he just looked like a million bucks coming down the aisle on the way to the ring. Even Lawler kind of gave, gave him some props for just look at him. He's got his muscles have muscles to quote, you know, what Lawler said there. Yeah. There was no screw ups in the ring, no botches or anything like that. So, I mean, he just looked really good. And uh, I love that whole no sell when the job guy's beating on him and he's just getting angrier and angrier. And Ahmed had that face. Where you don't want to really want to mess with him when he looked like he was pissed off. Oh yeah, yeah, he was very believable up until that Farouk injury. Uh, he was he was well on his way to being something special. Yeah, and then after that injury, he just fell apart. He got lazy. Literally injuries, more <laughs> literally. injuries, more injuries. <laughs> it literally fell uh, apart. <laughs> yeah, like everything just went downhill for him. And I feel bad because I. 
he did have the. I think Sean mentioned that he had the rocket strapped to him or something, and uh, he definitely did. And uh, it's just unfortunate. I don't know how far he would have gone with the click running the show there, or at least Sean. But seemed like they tried to stay yeah. out of his way. Like he just kind of went and did his. As long as he wasn't in that main event, I don't think it really affected Sean enough to where he he was uh, gonna mess with it very much. I can't wait for the gold dust stuff. <laughs> <laughs> We get Barry Dedinsky out here. He's uh, shilling the 1996 WWF calendar. And if you order tonight, Steve, you get diesel sunglasses and black gloves. How cool is that? What a combo. Trash. I can go <laughs> buy any pair of black gloves and some black shades. Ain't nothing special. Oh, Lord. So we get this. $21, uh, too, right? $21. I, don't, I, d- like, I didn't write down the price this time, but yeah, I'm sure it was something ridiculous. Uh, Five dollar gloves and glasses combo for five bucks, really, and uh, sixteen for a calendar. No thanks. So we get this split screen, quote unquote, satellite promo uh, with Diesel and Brett both on the TV screen at the same time. They're in their own houses or wherever they're supposed supposedly at, and Vince McMahon's uh, interviewing them from the WWF Raw arena. Uh, I'll, I'll break this down first. I'm going to talk about what Brett says, then I'm going to talk about what Diesel says, rather than try to go back and forth like the interview did. First, Brett says things like, Vince asks, uh, if Diesel's the leader of the new generation, what does that make Brett? Brett thinks he never lost the belt because his mother threw in the towel, so he, he's crying. He's basically crying even back here that he should be champion. Uh, he points out that nobody won their match between Diesel and Brett back at Rumble 95. Diesel did not beat him. Uh, Brett doesn't think Diesel can last in a no time limit match. Brett can keep going 15, 20 minutes, whatever it takes. I think he's pointing out his his um, stamina, his cardio is, is much better than Diesel's. I don't think anybody's going to argue that. But uh, yeah, it's just Bret Hart being Bret Hart here, I thought. Vince goes over to Diesel. Diesel asks, how can Bret be the best there is, was, ever will be if Diesel's the one that's the champion right now? Diesel counteracts what Brett had said in regards to the no time limit. Diesel said he's not planning to go all night. He's just coming in there to beat people up. Uh, He also points out to Brett because Brett says how nobody won at Royal Rumble 95 during their one-on-one match there. Diesel points out how he jackknifed Brett, not just at Rumble 95, but he's done it on two separate occasions in their matches, but other things prevented the pinfall from taking place. So while Diesel's never pinned Bret Hart, he admits he's curious what would have happened in those circumstances. And finally, Diesel says one thing different between the Rumble 95 and here in Survivor Series 95 is Diesel's much bigger, much smarter, much stronger than he was in January. And the bottom line is uh, they both have questions as to who would win based on their past times in the ring together. Those will all be decided here at Survivor Series because it's no DQ, no count out, and no time limit. So we're pretty much assured that we're going to get a winner. I thought this was really well done. It was a bit long. But really good stuff promo-wise. Like I, I liked how they compartmentalized everything. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was very easy to follow. And the questions kind of asked themselves. Because these guys have been going at it since, what, King of the Ring 94. Um, right. Never really had a finish. So that, I think they kind of left into this match with the way they did the King of the Ring a year prior. Just because they probably had no idea where they were heading to Survivor Series at that point. So they got lucky there to where it kind of matched the rumble finish. So, uh, yeah, this is very well done. The one thing that kind of bothered me was Bret Hart saying that Diesel was dodging, like, technical wrestlers. And I'm just thinking, like, he fought Razor. He fought 
Kidd, he fought Sean, he fought a lot of guys that are smaller than him. Uh, I don't Bulldog even is not very large as far as you know, like a, a Sid. Right. Um, so a lot of the challenges that Diesel had throughout the year were smaller guys, and Brett saying he dodges technical wrestling. That didn't make sense. I was like, "What the hell are you talking about?" Well, didn't he and beat Diesel Bob Backlund for the belt? Wasn't isn't, isn't Backlund one of the most technical <laughs> guys on on Earth? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I guess. But I mean, Diesel even called him out. He's like, "I've wrestled everyone. He's not dodging anybody." And Diesel's kind of looking like, "Where the hell did you get that from?" Right. Um, but yeah, it's it, it, this is very well done. I still remember this when I was a kid. I remember watching it. I thought it was a very it was different, but it was a good way to sell their match for Survivor Series. I was excited to see that match after this segment, even though there wasn't a lot of heat. It was just very well done by both guys. Both guys said what they needed to say and got it over. Yeah, what really caught my eye, I remember, I remember back watching this for the first time way back then, was the split screen and then being able to hear one another and respond to one another. I mean, I know they used to do the face-to-face, which replaced the event center at one point for the local localized promos and things like that. And I know, I know you can go back to Primetime 89 where Piper and and it's in one studio and Heenan's in another studio. So we've seen things like this before, but not at this magnitude, not, not in this professional setting like this. And, I, and believe it or not, according to the melts anyway, this was the secondary idea uh, that the events wound up going with because they had actually taped an interview which, uh, between Brett and Diesel, which turned into a pull-apart brawl between the two at the arena involving Brett and Diesel, which also included Owen Hart, Yokozuna, and Davey Boy Smith. And this was scheduled to air originally, but I guess they decided not to air this uh, because it wasn't focused enough on the world title match. And so they went with plan B here, which I think they did a good, good, good call there by Vince McMahon. Yeah, absolutely. You're going into your biggest title match and you didn't really get gimmick title matches back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, normally it was just a straight singles match. So you have all these stipulations, no DQ, no time limit, no count out. We're going to have a winner type deal. I wouldn't want anyone else involved in this segment as the the go home to that. So right decision has definitely been made as well. I, I agree. Uh, they made the right choice here. Keep the focus on the challenger and the champion. That's all that matters at this point. It's time for Milton Bradley karate fighters. It's Jerry Lawler taking on Vince McMahon in a karate fighters match. Uh, of course, Jerry Lawler gets the win here, but it's found out in instant replay that Lawler had actually, and he does this every year. You'd think they'd catch on. This year, it's a piece of black tape that he places over his karate fighter's foot so that it can't be knocked off the pedestal as uh, Lawler beats Vince McMahon, and they don't even disqualify him or overturn the ruling. I don't know what's up with that, but uh, it's, it's, all, uh, it's a commercial within a commercial because while they're advertising karate fighters, Vince McMahon speaks up and advertises the Survivor Series and the return of The Undertaker because The Undertaker's team will be taking on Jerry Lawler at the Survivor Series. So I thought that was a fun little quick segment. It got over their, their sponsor and the pay-per-view at the same time. Yeah, good job. Uh, I, I, like I said, I always enjoy these. I think another year he uses this piece of gum. He sticks yeah. gum on their feet and stuff like that. So I, I never thought these things overstayed their welcome. And I love the toys as a kid, so I enjoyed it. We get King Mabel to the ring. He's accompanied by Sir Mo taking on Roy Raymond. You can guess who wins this one. It's a pre-match video promo. From The Undertaker, he's somewhere, I'm not really sure, maybe a cemetery. And they have it darkened down and, and the smoke coming up to where you can't see The Undertaker's face. They're saving that for the pay-per-view. 
Uh, but it's basically just the Undertaker saying he's coming. He's coming back at the Survivor Series, and King Mabel's going to be in trouble. And I thought the, the end of this match was uh, pretty funny. King Mabel lands a uh, avalanche splash in the corner on Roy Raymond, and basically Raymond disappears. And uh, Vince even <laughs> says, he eclipsed Raymond like he eclipsed him. He really, really did. I, I, I didn't really know what to call it, but Vince said it, said it best. He eclipsed him. He just completely made the guy completely disappear. It was, it was pretty funny. And uh, Belly to Belly gets the win here. King Mabel gets the win. Three minutes. Nothing match. Just getting ready for the Survivor Series. We get a vignette with the fake Bill Clinton. Vince McMahon must have loved this guy. Used him on a couple of occasions. And since Survivor Series is heading to Washington, D.C., there's no better time to use the fake Bill Clinton uh, than when you're right there in the nation's capital. Fake Bill Clinton, what'd you think of him? Uh, jeez, I didn't really care. I wasn't into politics when I was 9 or 10 years old, so he was just there. Uh, I never found him funny. This is pre-scandal Bill as well, so probably not. There's just not a lot of material to even run around as a fake Bill Clinton other than he's the president. Wasted time. Yeah, Vince got a kick out of it. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. We close the show with the non-title match between Intercontinental Champion Razor Ramon taking on Psycho Sid with the referee, the 1-2-3 Kid, Razor's buddy, the 1-2-3 Kid, and I'm still trying to figure out why Gorilla booked this match to begin with. Why was the 1-2-3 Kid put in here as the referee? That was never explained. But uh, yeah, this originally was supposed to be a title match. It's no longer a title match. And I put down in my notes, first thing I wrote down, Sid coming to the ring. I don't know if it was the blue lighting or, or what it was, but I just wrote, what a look Sid had here. I, and he had it most of his career, but I was just like, damn, I was so impressed with just his entrance here. Yeah, I don't care what anybody says about Sid. His entering work probably leaves a lot to be desired. But when his music hit, the, the psycho theme that I think he comes out to here, yeah. when that hit, he got a pop. He got a reaction every single time. You just go back and watch it. His shit at Survivor Series, they're cheering him for beating up Sean. He get, he's in the Alamo Dome at the Rumble 97, and he gets a pretty damn big pop in, in Sean's backyard. So this guy was over his pretty much entire run with the WWF because of his look. They didn't care what he did in the ring. It's 95. Nobody gave a shit what you really did in the ring unless you worked Japan and that sort of thing. You just wanted to be entertained, and Sid did that. And this Sid here, he even looks like a slimmed-down Sid, if you can believe that. He kind of looks like he's off the gas a little bit, and he just looks thinned down and more athletic. Yeah, just a tremendous look. I mean, if you, if you want to be a wrestler, you, you'd you want to look like Sid. That's yeah, easy money. I don't think they have much of an option here in 95, but to be off the gas, at least to a large degree anyway. I don't know if you caught this or how long Razor's been doing it, but I saw him do it here on the way down the aisle and after the pyro in the ring. He's sitting there throwing up a four-life sign repeatedly in front of his intercontinental title belt. And I really don't know what all that was about, but I, I thought that was kind of interesting that's, that he just kept doing it all the way during the intro or during the entrance. I think that started when he became the four-time WWF IC champion after the In Your House. He, okay. he would always do the four in front of it because that was like his fourth IC title reign. At least that's what I can remember. All right, I, didn't know it was like a, I, I didn't know if I was uh, missing anything. If you throwing up a click sign for life, I didn't really know what was going on with that. It's the first time I ever really noticed it. Oh, kid's doing the click sign. <laughs> no, the kid does it on the, uh, on the way to the ring in the next, next week's episode. Yes, definitely. 
Uh, we see a video before the match. Recently on Superstars, the Smoking Guns gave Sid or gave the Kid and Razor their rematch. You know that rematch Kid demanded here a week or two ago yeah. on Raw. Razor and Kid wound up getting disqualified in the rematch because Razor had to save the Kid not once, not twice, not even three times, but four times during the match. And it, finally, the referee had had enough, and he call, called for the disqualification because of all the interference from Razor Rowan trying to help his little buddy. Because the story is all of a sudden that the one two three kid is just completely incapable of holding his own. Yeah, I didn't like it. And this match starts off, it's back and forth. one two three kid plays it fair. He warns Sid. He warns Ted DiBiase on the apron. Uh, we get a Razor's Edge counter at one point. Sid backdrops Razor Ramon to the floor. And while Sid distracts the one two three kid, who is the referee, Ted DiBiase lays in a few stomps on Razor, and then it's Dean Douglas making his way to ringside as we go into a commercial break. And as we come back out of the commercial, Dean Douglas has attacked Razor on the floor. The kid is distracted by Sid. Basically, don't fuck with the ranch fries is uh, what Shane Douglas is doing right here. And he's uh, stomping a mud hole in Razor Ramon on the floor. And it's kind of interesting here that the kid's missing all of this. As long as the kid's been in the business, you'd think he'd know all these heel tricks by now because they've all been used on him for the last several years. <laughs> you would think. Shouldn't the ref the wrestlers should be the best referees? They they know all the tricks of the trade. Guess not. Well, we'll figure out here in a minute why the kids ignoring all of these signs on the outside. Sid dominates the match from that point on for a while, and Razor winds up escaping a seated rear chin lock. Uh, but Sid runs into a boot from Razor in the corner, and Razor nails the bulldog off the middle rope for a two count. Sid tries for a backdrop. Razor counters, picks Sid up into the Razor's edge. I was impressed he got him up. Looked real nice. He was getting ready to drop it when all of a sudden the referee, the one, two, three kid grabs Sid by his leg and yanks him down out of the razor's edge. He helps Sid escape the razor's edge. Razor turns around. Sid's supposed to boot him in the gut, but it looks like he misses by a mile, but razor sells it anyway. And it's power bomb time. Sid power bombs the intercontinental champion and the one, two, three kid makes the fast count and screws his good buddy. Razor Ramon match goes 12 minutes. What was your take on the pinfall? Yeah, I don't know why they do the fast count. I think uh, it's just the heel thing to do, I, man. I, I guess, but I think uh, the kid already screwed him. The power bombs needs to be, you know, protected a little bit. Really, no need to do a fast count. But as you said, it's the heel thing to do. I was shocked as a kid when it happened because I didn't really pick up on the subtle hints <laughs> that he was turning. I just saw him crying and losing all the time more than anything. And then he actually made the turn, and I'm like, oh, wow, uh, the kid's a bad guy. Because the kid doesn't really look like a, a heel or, or a bad guy. He just doesn't fit the criteria that a nine-year-old would think of as a bad dude. So um, I was surprised by it. I still remember it. I still enjoy it when I watch it. I, I look forward to it whenever I torment myself and watch Raw 95. <laughs> I, I look forward to this episode just because I know it's coming. But, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Enjoyed it then, and I enjoy it now. Yeah, and uh, it's been obvious for weeks now that something was going to happen. It's been escalating. I didn't know specifically that the kid was going to be doing a heel turn, but it was pretty obvious that something was going to happen here. Uh, but I was really hoping against it. I was, I kept waiting for the one, two, three kid to get that one big win, and I don't mean that fluke win where he beat Razor when he first got over. I mean an actual, real big win, maybe uh, an intercontinental title run or something along those lines as a a baby face. I thought he really deserved that. It felt like it, it was always coming. But it never happened. And even when he got the tag belts, you know, they dropped it the next night or a week later or whatever it was a couple of, on a couple of occasions, it seemed like. But 
basically the story here is, as the announcers will tell you, the one, two, three kid has been bought. Uh, I thought it was funny. Ted DiBiase stuffs a $5 Canadian bill <laughs> into the mouth of Razor Ramon. And let me tell you something back in the nineties, that would have been about $2 and 50 cents American. So very insulting. And then in classic heel fashion, the kid reaches down, grabs the $5 Canadian bill, and stuffs it in his pants pocket before leaving the ring with Sid. So that was a good, good little segment there by everyone involved. I was still upset that the kid turned heel. Like I said, I was hoping for a little more of a babyface run with him. But, I mean, it is what it is. got to deal with it and, and roll with it. I thought he did a good job as the Lightning Kid in Global as a heel. So I knew he could work the heel gimmick. I thought he was a great punk's asshole heel there. Didn't really need to cut a promo to be one. It's just the way he presented himself, you know. Look, who is this 100-pound soaking wet jerk that thinks, you know, that he's somebody, you know. So it worked and it got over. And I think they were going to try to recreate that here before things just kind of went sideways with the whole thing. Yeah, that was uh, it was uh, very interesting. And uh, it was, uh, I can't say that I was shocked when it originally happened, but. I wish they hadn't went that route just quite yet. But yeah, it was a good storyline. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. So we go backstage to close the show. They start to interview the rest of Razor Ramon's wildcard team for the Survivor Series. It's Jim Cornette with Yokozuna, Owen Hart, and Dean Douglas. Jim Ross is doing the interviewing. He asks Dean Douglas why he attacked Razor when Razor's going to be his partner at Survivor Series. Duh, JR. They're feuding. Anyways, Jim Cornette barely speaks up before Razor Ramon attacks Dean Douglas. As uh, we wind up going off the air, selling the wild card dynamics is unpredictable. I get what they were going for pay-per-view-wise, selling the Survivor Series, but shouldn't Razor have been looking for, like, Ted DiBiase, Sid, the kid? I mean, Dean Douglas would have been fourth on that list for me. Yeah, but maybe uh, Dean was the first guy he saw, so he's like, <laughs> I'm just going to kick his ass first, and I'll get to them two later. Um, it's very, very possible. <laughs> Segment yeah, of the night. I, I, Someone oh, and I has to be Razor and Sid. Wasn't a lot. I mean, the the, the face-to-face interview was really cool. I enjoyed it. Uh, still do. But Razor and Sid, I mean, uh, when you still remember a turn, that means it meant something. That means you was invested in the guy as a good guy. And just the story that they told of Kid being Razor's little buddy and, and, and things like that, and then all of a sudden he turns on him. So that means you was invested in it a little bit, even as a kid. And... um to still remember it and still enjoy it, that says a lot. So I, I definitely went. I definitely gotta go razor and sit here with the turn. Yeah, I'll do the same. Uh, it's just the most memorable thing on this show. Certainly one of the more memorable, one of the more memorable booked angles of 1995 in in a whole. So uh, yeah, the the turn of the one two three kid on his good buddy Razor Ramon. Everything's kind of full circle here. Two and a half years after you know they first met. It all comes back around, and now it's the kid who is the heel on Razor Ramon, and uh, we'll see that play out a little more uh, next week and, and moving forward. But, uh, yeah, so segment of the night, I'll, I'll agree with you, and I'll also agree with you that I, I, too, enjoyed the face-to-face or whatever you want to call it, the split-screen promo with Diesel and Brett. It was very different for the time, very well done. and, and, and But it's just, I don't know, it doesn't have the same flavor as, you know, a, a hot angle. Or, you know, or a big storyline. So, yeah, definitely yeah. Razor and Kid or Razor and Sid or however you want to look at it. That's uh, that's my segment of the night as well. And. The ratings are in. 
WWF Monday Night Raw does a 2.6 rating with a 3.9 share. Wow, almost 4% of the night's audience. To WCW Nitro's 2.0 rating in a 2.9 share. So Raw does 2.6, Nitro does 2.0. The difference? Simply Razor Ramon taking on Sid for the Intercontinental title was a more over main event to the general public than Randy Savage taking on Ming, which was the highest profile match as far as uh, WCW Nitro was concerned that night. Yeah, I kind of figured it's the go-home show. So Everybody talks about the show afterwards, but that go-home show usually is a pretty good rating to match the the day after. So um, I, I wasn't surprised by this at all. And so Raw beats Nitro in the ratings, Steve, but who do you declare the real winner? Was it Raw with the go-home show edition for the Survivor Series, the 1-2-3 kid turn, or was it Nitro with Sting versus Malenko, Eddie versus Johnny B? had two really good matches to get plenty of time out there. Even Benoit Sasaki, even only it only went two and a half minutes, was uh, pretty damn good action for what it was. So is it the wrestling-heavy Nitro, or is it the angle-heavy Raw that sold you this week? Well, on my notes, uh, I'll be, I'm going to be transparent here. I have Nitro, but after talking about it and just thinking about it, I'm going to have to go flip that and go to Raw. Uh, I, I just felt like the kid angle, it's stuck with me all these years. Uh, I still remember what was said during the face-to-face, and it, it just had a better impact. I was more entertained by the Sid and Kid and Razor angle compared to what happened on Nitro. Uh, the Nitro had really great matches, three really good matches with Eddie and Ben Bad and Ben Juan Sazaki and then Sting and Malenko. Those are solid matches. But nine-year-old me saying, like, you got to entertain me. And yeah. I wasn't just in it for the wrestling. I, I want angles and stories. And I was looking forward to the Survivor Series pay-per-view. So I'm pretty sure I was a big part of that 3.9 share that uh, WWF got that year, that, that week. Because um, right. I was excited for Survivor Series. So I'm going to go with Raw. Yeah, and um, I think I really see where you're coming from here. And I think I, I would have almost said the same thing. I felt I know I had Nitro in my notes um, just because of all the wrestling. However, after we kind of talked this over, it felt like Raw was more prominent as far as the, the storylines and things like that. So I'm not going to flip. I'm going to stick with Nitro only because you picked Raw, and I, I kind of want to do Nitro. Uh, it's just desserts as well because – there was a lot of great wrestling on it. And so I'll just, I'll stick with my nitro call, even though I, I don't disagree with raw as well. I figure like this is one of those coin flip ones. I think you can't really go wrong. It just depends on what you enjoy more, at least what you, you know, how much you enjoyed the, the angle itself on, on raw compared to, you know, the wrestling action on nitro. I don't think you, there is a wrong answer this week. I think they both did what they needed to do and uh, I'll stick with nitro, but uh, I can, I can see where you picked raw. So, yeah. It's a toss-up for sure. You can't go wrong either one. Two pretty good shows for completely different reasons, to be honest. Yeah, agreed. We'll move into the next week. It's WCW Monday Nitro for November 20th. They're now in Macon, Georgia at the Coliseum, and we're back live. So if there's any continuity issues now, then WCW's really screwing up. Just like last episode of Raw was the go-home show to Survivor Series, this is the go-home show to the World War III pay-per-view. And uh, this week's Nitro uh, is reportedly largely papered with a full house of 6,000 fans. Largely papered makes me feel like there's at least two-thirds papered. So say what, at least 4,000 people given these freebies <laughs> to fill up the arena? Imagine having a paper-heavied he- Hogan versus Sting match. 
that only drew $13,000 paid at the gate. Just think about that for a second. Let that sink in. You had to paper two-thirds of your arena, a 6,000-seat arena, for Hogan versus Sting. That's how well WCW did building this up. And it's in their backyard of Macon, Georgia. Yeah. <laughs> like, the NWA country was Georgia for a long time. There's Omni and stuff. So, man, that if I'm Bishop, I'm looking at that and like, man, oh, man. <laughs> That's and I think, crazy. Yeah, and I think he does look at it like that. I mean, not necessarily the Nitro itself, but I, I, I know how he felt about the whole house show situation. So I think Bish was on top of this stuff. I don't know that he always knew exactly what to do, which is probably why they're throwing things like this out there. This just seemed like the wrong week, I guess, in hindsight's 2020, but the wrong week to do Sting and Hogan. Maybe build it up just a little bit more than, the, than announcing it the week before and passing. Yeah, do a hot angle and push it for a couple weeks. I mean, come on. And Mongo, for the second week in a row, proves to be smarter than Eric Bischoff because as he sits there with Pepe the dog in a cowboy costume, uh, he <laughs> points out that Sting versus Hulk Hogan should be on pay-per-view. Well, no shit, Mongo. Everyone knows that except Eric Bischoff. I just thought it was funny that Mongo basically even calls Eric stupid here. Uh, inadvertently calls Eric stupid, but stupid nonetheless. <laughs> good for mongo so we got a match coming up in the ring it's scott flash norton making his way out and scott look out scott look out behind you scott scott it's it's shark attack shark attack shark attacks scott norton you remember the feud that goes all the way back to week two of wcw monday nitro between shark the epic feud of Shark and Scott Flash Norton. Well, here's the payoff here this week. It's Shark Attack in the aisle. Shark John Tenta jumps Scott Norton from behind in the aisle. They work their way to the ring. Earthquake gets on top early, but Scott Norton starts to no-sell the offense of Tenta. Shark misses a splash in the corner. Impressive power slam by Scott Norton gets the win. Match went 1 minute and 42 seconds. All these weeks of, well, you can't really call it build-up, but all these weeks of anticipation. No, you can't call it anticipation either. But you can call it over. Thank God. And Scott Norton gets the win in this epic feud between uh, Norton and Shark. What did you think? Yeah, this is the rematch we never thought we needed, but we got it anyways. The power slam was pretty tremendous. It, it was pretty cool looking. There's a funny spot. He did hit this. He hit a splash in the corner, and uh, he started posing like Earthquake always did, where he flexes muscles, his flab, and. This time he would add in the uh, shark. He's like chomping down with his teeth <laughs> while he's doing it. Yeah. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, <laughs> <just good laughs> stuff. Great GIF. Great yeah. GIF material there. <laughs> yeah. Hot cha cha cha. Awesome, dude. That, getting that heat right there, flexing, um, even though he has nothing to show. Uh, just classic. But yeah, Power Slam was cool. Glad this shit's over. Um, <laughs> maybe if they invested this amount of time into like an Eddie Benoit feud, thank you. Uh, they would have got over a little bit. My goodness! If, if only we got payoffs in matches that that we wanted to see payoffs in, that would, that would be more tremendous. But no, they make sure that Eric Bischoff makes sure that his buddy Scott Norton gets one over on Shark Attack here <laughs> to close out the feud once and for all. I hope it's promo time. It's Mean Gene Oakland standing in the aisle. With Jimmy Hart and Kevin Sullivan, Jimmy Hart tells Sting, Sting's not out there, he's just talking to Sting on the <laughs> camera, that uh, Hulk Hogan's buddies with Macho Man Randy Savage, not Sting. And then 
I like how the heels sneak in a way to promote Hulk Hogan's TV work here. Uh, Jimmy Hart points out, Hulk Hogan's been filming another episode of Baywatch with uh, Randy Savage, and then they show, just happen to have clips of Baywatch with Hogan and Savage uh, to show during this promo. So basically, they got the heels out there who are feuding with Hogan, but they're promoting his TV show for him at the same time, or his cameo appearance on on Baywatch anyway. Yeah, I thought this was pretty well done. Uh, they, he mentioned that Sting was uh, Hogan's partner on Thunder in Paradise, and now that now Savage is taking um, taking all those spots over from Sting. It's almost as if since Savage came in, Sting's been put on the back burner by Hogan, and he's not really friends. So right. it, it was cheesy and hokey, and this, they did get the plug in for Baywatch, but uh, it made sense, which is better than what some of this shit is as far as Nitro goes. <laughs> oh, shit. I know that theme. It must be time once again. For the Disco Inferno. And he's out there shaking his booty in the aisle. I think he's out here. He's got a CD with him this week. It's uh, the best of Disco Inferno. I'm not really sure what it is. Maybe it's just a, a single, Disco Fever. Did you buy the Disco Fever CD, Steve? Did you buy the Disco Inferno CD, Steve? Uh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> Play frisbee with that shit. <laughs> so Disco Inferno's back out. He's been missing an action here and there the last few weeks. The continuity's gone away for Disco Inferno out here dancing. But uh, he's here this week, and he's dancing in between the matches. And it's time for Eddie Guerrero. Uh, he's scheduled to take on Ric Flair. And Eddie makes his way out first, and he kind of down. He stares down Disco, and Disco kind of backs off. And Eddie on his way to the ring to take on Ric Flair. But it's not Ric Flair that we get, and I was kind of bummed about that. I was kind of excited to see Eddie Guerrero go one-on-one with Ric Flair. I know we eventually do, but I was just pumped for it here this week. I didn't realize we weren't getting it, so when I realized we weren't, I was kind of bummed uh, because we have Ric Flair coming out in street clothes, but he's accompanied to the ring by Brian Pillman, who's in wrestling gear, so you can kind of figure this out before they ever even get to the ring. Rick says he's too focused on the stinger to wrestle someone like Guerrero, and Rick says it was a mistake all along, and no- nobody his caliber would ever wrestle someone like an Eddie Guerrero in real life. Ric Flair is injured. He has that rotator cuff surgery or injury. And uh, it's reported by the melts anyway, that Flair probably won't return to the ring until around Christmas time. I'm pretty sure he works Starcade. I don't know that he works world war three off the top of my head. Yeah, he anyway. works Starcade in the, the triangle match. Right. Uh, with I think Savage and Sting. So yeah, he's there for that at least. Yeah. So, but that's why Flair's not working here tonight. So that's why we don't get the match. Makes sense. I didn't think about that until I saw him come out and cut this promo. And, you know, we inadvertently get a revenge match here for Eddie Guerrero. He was DDT'd a few weeks ago for absolutely no reason whatsoever by Brian Pillman. DDT'd in the middle of the aisle after a match. So at least, um, at least Eddie, uh, Eddie has a chance opportunity here for some revenge, even though I don't even think they acknowledge that once in this match because that would make too much sense for Eric Bischoff. And he probably wasn't even paying attention. Yeah, he probably already forgot that Pillman did that a few weeks ago. I, I, I made note of that. It's cool that they got a match out of it, even though, like like I said, Bischoff and none of them mentioned that he got dropped with the DDT on the outside while he was heading to the back. So you, you just have a match here that Flair wanted no part of. Way to kind of shit on Eddie Guerrero. Uh, I know it's not Flair's fault. It's just he can't work. But right. Hey Pillman, take care of my light work here, and it just kind of 
minimizes Eddie Guerrero a little bit. So Brian Pillman, I've noticed here over the last hour, actually going all the way back to the first week of Nitro when he was still a babyface, he's trying to change his in-ring style. He's getting bigger. He's bulking up a little bit. And now that he's a heel, he's slowing the tone of his wrestling offense down even more. Makes sense. Uh, but Brian Pillman uh, still winds up missing a dive onto the railing, so he hasn't given that spot up yet. He loves taking those bumps on the railing. No different here as he uh, takes a bump to the floor. And Eddie Guerrero, he does it almost every time, man, but I, I, it never gets old. Always a beautiful-looking Eddie Guerrero climbs to the top rope and goes sailing into the middle of the aisle and launches himself down with a big, giant dive onto Brian Pillman. Great stuff there by Eddie Guerrero. Yeah, I love that spot. I, I make note of it every time he has a match and he does it. It just looks so damn good. Oh, my God. Eddie was so good, man. So good. So they wind up back in the ring, and Eddie goes to the top rope, but Pillman falls into the ropes and causes Eddie to get crotched. And Pillman climbs up, and he attempts a superplex, but Eddie fights his way off, and Pillman takes a nice big bump all the way back to the middle of the ring. And Eddie Guerrero lands a frog splash and pins Brian Pillman of the Horsemen in 6 minutes and 24 seconds. This is absolutely the biggest win in Eddie Guerrero's career here so far, in his short career here in WCW so far. I thought this was a huge win, and it shocked the hell out of me because this is another match that I really didn't remember. Like I said, I thought we were getting Eddie and Flair to start with, and I'd forgotten that he was replaced by Pillman, so I really wasn't expecting this finish either. Shocked the hell out of me when I saw it coming, and I couldn't believe it, and just a huge win for for Eddie here. Yeah, it, it was a big win, but I, I just felt like the, the Flair promo kind of put a damper on it. And then, again, the commentary not really caring about what the hell's going on. When somebody says, take care of my light work, and I, I'm, I, I'm Ric Flair, I shouldn't be in the ring with you. What's that make Brian Pillman look like? You got beat by the guy that Ric Flair wants no business being in the ring with or because he's not on his level. So that means Pillman's below Eddie's level. And he's a member of the Horsemen, so well, that was the story to get to this point was pretty shoddy, pretty crappy. But the match itself was good, and the ending was great. Uh, I was surprised. I, I forgot that he even won this, and I was not expecting that. And it was clean, as clean as day. So, um, surprise. Yeah, if you asked me who was going to win here, I would have ninety nine point nine percent positive. I would have said Brian Pillman's winning this. If if there was a finish, I would have guessed Brian Pillman is the winner here. So. Definitely a huge shock for me. The only thing I can say about Ric Flair using that, that type of language when he was cutting the promo on Eddie, calling him below him, was he's a, he's a heel, and he's Ric Flair. And so, I mean, yeah. you got to kind of take those kind of punches at times. I get what you're saying, 100%, but I, I still feel like this was a huge deal for Eddie Guerrero to pin someone who's uh, been established as a WCW superstar for, what, six years now, uh, someone like Brian Pillman. So... I also noticed Eric Bischoff, once again, he must not pay attention to his own program because he asks Heenan mockingly at the end of the match after uh, Eddie pins Pillman, oh, where's Anderson? Where's Benoit? Well, Eric, if you'd listen to Ric Flair's promo, you'd know they were sitting and waiting on a jet with Flair's Hooters girls, you fucking douche. Pay attention to your own show. Yeah, pretty much. This week on (laughs) set. This week on WCW Saturday Night, we have no real matches. It's just a bunch of random guys wrestling, I'm assuming squashes, as they promote Lex Luger, Hugh Morris, that's humorous, VK Wall Street, and Disco Inferno in action. No main event, no competitive matches, just a bunch of squashes, I guess, this week on Saturday Night. 
Doesn't sound very good. Well, that's putting it mildly. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Back to the ring. It's the rematch we never knew we wanted and we probably really didn't want. Uh, If you might recall a few weeks ago, Road Warrior Hawk was out here wrestling Big Bubba Rogers when Disco Inferno was causing issues at ringside. Hawk winds up getting countered out in that match as he's chasing Disco Inferno around ringside. And Bubba gets the win by countout. So this is another one of those inadvertent rematches here. So this entire show feels like inadvertent rematches. We get Norton and Shark, which has been going on forever. We get Guerrero getting revenge on Pillman, even though it's not even played up as such. And now we get Hawk looking for revenge on Bubba, which again, they never referenced their previous match. So I don't think Eric even remembers anything that happens from week to week unless it involves Hogan. <laughs> You're probably not wrong. He has no clue what the hell's going on week to week. Yeah, so they don't even sell this as being a rematch or, or whatever. And that just happened a few weeks ago. But Hawk attacks Bubba on the floor to start the match. And they get in the ring and Bubba's in the corner. I don't know if you noticed this. I don't know how you didn't notice I this did. if you didn't. But Bubba kind of kicks, kicks at Hawk. Hawk grabs Bubba by his legs, picks him up in the air while Bubba's holding the corner. And a foreign object, a large foreign object, falls out of the pants pocket of Big Bubba and hits the hits the mat. And Mongo, not knowing any better, points it out. He talks to me, and <laughs> Bubba, Bubba grabs it and puts it back in his pocket eventually, but it lays there long enough on right in front of the camera. You can't miss it. A big brown, oh, long, yeah. long object, size of like a hot dog or something. And Mongo yeah. point, points it out, and he's and Bischoff tries to play. Either Bischoff didn't see it or he tries to play stupid. And in this instance, it felt like Bischoff was trying to play stupid. Uh, Eric, or Mongo, what are you talking about? And Mongo basically gives away the finish of all heel matches with foreign objects. He goes, it's like he predicted this. It's almost as if Mongo's been watching wrestling for a while. He says, oh, Bischoff goes, Mongo, what are you talking about? He goes, oh, we'll find out. Just wait a minute. You know, like he knows that he's going to use it. So he's already given away like the finish of this match. I'm just like, oh my God. Uh, Bubba, <laughs> Bubba takes over on the offense. They wind up cracking heads. They both go down. Hawk goes up top. He goes for a, a top rope clothesline. At least it looks like it was supposed to be a top rope clothesline. Bubba steps side and, and Hawk crashes to the mat. Really sloppy stuff in this match by both guys, really. And Bubba goes into his tights. He grabs his object and he tapes the object up with his hand. So he's taping his fist along with his foreign object inside. And for some reason, Bubba needs to run off the ropes to throw a punch. So he goes to run off the ropes and winds up getting tripped up out of nowhere by Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who he is feuding with in a taped fist feud of sorts. They're wrestling in a taped fist match at World War III. And Bubba, this is hilarious, he trips up, (laughs) gets tripped up by Duggan and falls forward and his head bounces off of his taped fist for an object and Bubba knocks himself out. I'm not making this shit up, people. (laughs) And Hawk crawls over and makes the pin, and Road Warrior Hawk gets his revenge in three minutes and 44 seconds. And holy shit, Steve. Yeah, holy shit is the only way to sum this up. It's so terrible, it's it's funny. Like It's so bad, it's good. He literally has to fall on his hand and knock himself out uh, for Hawk to get the win. But my God, uh, this was sloppy. It wasn't very good. Hawk did his normal offense like 30 seconds in and had nothing left for the next two and a half minutes, three minutes. I, I had no interest in this. And to be honest with you, dude, I didn't even realize this was a rematch until you mentioned it just now. I, I didn't even think that they were even in the ring 
uh, prior to this. <laughs> um, so tells you how much it meant to me that they right. fought earlier. Garbage. Waste of time. I, I need a reference. This Big Bubba and Jim Duggan feud for a minute. I, I know this isn't the grenade, and this is all about Monday Warfare, Monday Nitro, but I have to talk about this feud for a minute and how ludicrous this entire thing is because we got two guys feuding who want to tape up their fists in order to, to fight each other, and Jim Duggan at this point has made a trip to Ireland to <laughs> dive into his family's roots, and Granny Duggan, or whatever the hell her name was, I'm glad I haven't seen this video footage in, in fucking 25 years, he goes back to, to Ireland, his family's roots, and long line of bare knuckles and tape fist fighters, and it all started with, you know, great, great, great Granny Duggan, or whatever the hell the deal was, and so... Big Bubba basically comes out of a feud with an allergy to Ralph Dave Sullivan's rabbit into this feud with Jim Duggan and Granny Duggan and this whole tape fist nonsense. Big Bubba is not having a good 1995. That's to say the least, man. I'm just glad it's on Saturday night and not the Monday show. Uh, they got a little bit of it here. I'm assuming to push the, the World War Three match. But I'm glad this is on the B show and I don't have to deal with it. It's kind of just there. I mean, it's garbage. It makes no sense. They're going overboard. But all I can say is at least Duggan and, and Bossman, Big Bubba, got something to do that's somewhat meaningful. There's a story behind it. At least they're, it's a feud and they're not just throwing together and having a bunch of stupid shit. There's something there. So I'm, I'm happy that they got something to do that means something a little bit, but it's garbage and a waste of time for the most part. There's a weird triangle too. There's a lot of alliance between big Bubba and, and VK wall street that I really don't get other than their former WWF buddies. Uh, I just don't really understand the alliance of Dude, big Bubba is... and VK wall street. And that continues on with the NWO too. Cause they both join the NWO, but then they're not allowed to be in the NWO for whatever reason, even though everybody else was allowed to be. So they were kind of like outcast for a little bit there and uh, just really weird. And they're both feuding kind of with Jim Duggan here. Yeah, it's just the continuation of the feud from Royal Rumble 90, man. Duh. I suppose. Bossman did turn babyface <laughs> right after that. <laughs> they never did get a real finish. Definitely not. Well, it's time for the big one. It's Hulk Hogan taking on Sting in a match that sold about 2,000 tickets, and, and we'll talk about ratings here in a little bit. But, yeah, so <laughs> that's basically how they sold it. So that's how I'm going to sell it to you guys. It's Hulk Hogan taking on Sting in what should be one of the greatest, biggest, most anticipated matches in history. But we get it here on free TV. Sting's out to the ring first. He's wearing red and yellow, and Heenan teases it's to mock Hulk Hogan while Eric Bischoff sells it that, He's wearing red and yellow to remind Hulk Hogan who he is and to bring him back to the, the good side. So Sting's in the ring first, and for some reason, Hogan's accompanied by Randy Savage. And so Savage is out first. He's got his arm all taped up and in a sling, selling the injury from last week in Lex Luger. And there's no Hulk Hogan. Where the hell's Hulk Hogan? He's not coming out. He's not coming out. Here comes Hulk Hogan from behind. Yes, through the crowd. So now Johnny B. Bad has done it. Randy Savage has done it. And Hulk Hogan have done it all within a matter of a month. Talk about overkill. Uh, it's still a lie. So Hulk does sneak up from behind, but unlike Savage or, or Bad, he doesn't attack Sting. He kind of waits for Sting to catch on, and Sting never catches on, which just makes Sting look like an idiot. So Hogan finally taps Sting on the shoulder, 
and he turns around and we prepare for the match as Hulk Hogan removes that Phantom of the Opera's type mask from his face. Yes, he entered the ring in that mask. If only he had brought the sword, maybe somebody could have used it on him. Use the Highlander gimmick. So we get a little bit of a match here. Hulk Hogan, even I think he accidentally locks on a cross arm breaker, though it has no resemblance of actually looking like it hurts. Hogan works a side headlock. Sting even rocks him back into a uh, pinning combination. Just looked weird watching Hogan in this move. And it's some back and forth, really a nothing match. And I hate to call it that when you see who's in the match, but just really a nothing match. And the crowd was even dead at points. If they were doing something big, the crowd made noise. If they were laying around doing headlocks, the crowd was dead. They weren't pumped. They weren't cheering. They weren't chanting. They weren't trying to get the match back on, you know, up, up to a, a vertical base. Uh, so it was just whatever. Finally, Hogan hulks up after powering out of a scorpion deathlock. And he goes to drop the big leg, but Sting moves just like the Warrior, just like his former Blade Runner buddy, the Warrior back at WrestleMania 6. Sting moves out of the way of the leg drop, and Hogan takes the bump, misses the leg drop, and Sting locks the Scorpion back on a second time, and Hogan (laughs) screams out in pain, Macho, help me, don't let him break my leg. It's it's terrible, terrible acting, and just made Hogan look like a dork the audio bites that he was shouting while he was placed in his <laughs> scorpion deathlock. I can't take it. Macho help me. Don't let him break my leg. It's just not the whole Hogan. I know. No, definitely not. And he's supposed to be badass, I mean, angry heel Hulk Hogan, right? Or, or angry tweener Hulk Hogan right now. And he's crying like a bitch in the ring. Yeah, this ain't it. Hogan even sold a drop kick over the top rope during this match. I was surprised by that. He did yeah. some selling. He, he did his best to make sting look good. Lots of bumps, bumps for a Hogan match, I, I should say. It wasn't too many, but there was more in there that you would normally get. The finish, though, this finish makes absolutely no sense. If you want to go through it real quick, then I can give you my info on the other side. But what what trash? Yeah, so uh, we get Sting locking Hogan back in the Scorpion Deathlock for a second time in the match, and Hogan's writhing in pain and crying like a little bitch. And here comes the entire Dungeon of Doom. It's Kevin Sullivan and Ming and Zodiac and Shark Attack. And even Hugh Morris has joined the Dungeon at this point. And they all jump in the ring and attack Sting and Hogan. So this match winds up being a no contest. And Savage on the outside as well. They attack all three baby faces. This match ends up being a no contest in about nine and a half minutes. The only credit I'll give them here is that there were, they made sure not to have any commercials during this match, Hogan and Sting. So that was kind of cool. Although I agree with you 100%, this finish was. Yeah, so my question is, you have Hogan and Sting, like, literally beating the shit out of each other. They're doing the work for you. So why the hell are you coming down here and interrupting? Just let Sting stay in the move and break his leg, and quotes there, air quotes, and let him finish the job. Why are you coming out here and interrupting this? I get it, you don't want to finish. Booking-wise, that makes sense, but. Well, you know, Hogan wasn't, Hogan wasn't going to submit. We know that no matter, no matter what. Well, well, yeah, but I mean, shit, let Savage pull him out and the ref call it for that or something. I don't know, but I would have loved for the, and this is again, like, so last week they had the fiasco where they taped the 11, 13 before the sixth. They didn't see anything on the 13th episode. The crowd didn't see Sting leave with Luger. So they had no idea that he was a heel or, possible heel at that point then you get the 11-6 which was after the 13th so you really couldn't play it up and then you get to the 20th and here they are in the main event Sting and Hogan you don't know which way it's going 
And then the Dungeon of Doom come out, and then Hogan and Sting join up right away. And so those those fans that were there live at the show on the 13th and the 6th really seen none of this as far as a continuity aspect goes, as far as Sting possibly turning heel and possibly joining the Dungeon. And they did nothing. It was just a hot shot angle for two weeks worth of TV. And I would have loved to have seen it go longer. Uh, hell, I would have liked to have seen it go through Starcade. Which side is Sting going to be on? Obviously, that wasn't in the books because they're just trying to pop a rating and long-term bookings out the window. But this was completely stupid. And I understand. I understand what they did and why they did it, but it's completely stupid. This whole thing was all for naught. Like, you got nothing out of it. Sting and Hogan... World War Three, their buddies at the very beginning of the show. He's burning dirt sheets and all that stupid shit. And then this the Dungeon of Doom looks stupid for beating up guys that were beating up each other and doing their work for him. So this was trash. Yeah, it seemed abrupt that they wanted to get Sting back on the good side. Not that he ever turned to the heel side, but just to to make sure they put the kibosh on anyone wondering if, if Sting was indeed turning heel. It clear, Clearly he wasn't. I mean, he was in the middle of the flare feud anyway. So not that WCW needs to make sense any, but it is what it is. So we get the, basically the entire dungeon minus the Yeti out here to attack Hogan and Sting, but to no avail as Sting and Hogan fights the entire dungeon of doom off until the giant makes his way down. Here comes the giant with Jimmy Hart. After all the fodder members, the B team of the dungeon of doom can't get the job done. And the giant straight in the ring grabs Hogan and Sting by the throat, looks to go for a double choke slam. Randy Savage whacks the giant in the back with a chair, causes him to drop Hogan and Sting, and he turns around instead and choke slams Randy Savage to the mat. So thanks for coming, Randy Savage. He saves Hogan and Sting, and they're nowhere to be found when he needs help. Sting and Hogan do manage to eliminate the giant from the ring afterwards, using a chair as a clothesline to run the giant out of the ring. Uh, not that he didn't want to get back in and, and do some more damage, but he was held back. We'll go on to World War Three to see who wins that one. Is So Sting and Hogan unite after having their match, and I think Sting's won Hogan's heart back. Hogan can trust him again here after this. Yeah, it, it got the point across, and it did what it needed to do, but I, I, me as a fan just wish it would have went a little longer as far as drawing out Sting as a good guy or bad guy. But to be honest with you, Hogan wasn't getting a pop. Savage was kind of eh, lukewarm. Sting was really the only over baby face that they had. So there was, they had no, they, they couldn't do anything with that at that point in time. It just wasn't going to work. And we go to commercial. And when we come back, it's Kevin Sullivan and Jimmy Hart causing all kinds of chaos at the broadcast booth. Mostly Kevin Sullivan. He's going nuts. And it's basically hyping up the World War Three match, the Battle Royal, and the Giant regaining the heavyweight championship. And Bischoff's playing it off like they're not supposed to be up there. He's telling them to get the hell out of here. Meanwhile, Mongo's sitting over there laughing. He can't, he can't contain himself. He's laughing at this segment. So he's, he's kind of killing it. But luckily, he's way off to the left, so the camera doesn't really pick him up too much. I think he's worthless at this point. Uh, but it's basically just the final sell. We're heading into World War III. This is the last little segment on Nitro, just trying to get it in there one more time. But they're not even mentioning the Yeti! Where the hell is... The Yeti! Damn it. I don't think anybody cares. <laughs> I want to know. I, I think Ma I think Mongo was laughing because Heenan was getting it. Uh, I think that's what it was. I don't know if he was necessarily laughing at the segment. I think he was just laughing that Heenan was getting beat up by somebody. 
I, I can't say I blame him for having nothing to do with the Yeti after he tried to dry home Paul Hogan for a minute and a half at Halloween Havoc. <laughs> I wouldn't be mentioning him either. So. All right, man. <laughs> this show was loaded with doozies. So what's your segment of the night? Is it the shark attack? Is it the impromptu dance fever of the Disco Inferno? Is it Big Bubba knocking himself unconscious? <laughs> right, it's, take your pick, Steve. What was your segment of the night? There's a lot of comedy. If, you, if that's what you're into, there's, there's a lot over here for you. But I mean, how can you not pick Hogan and Sting in the ring for the first time? I know it wasn't very good as far as a technical match or a masterpiece or the build was nothing. Uh, it's nowhere near the anticipation and things like that two years later for the first time ever. Uh, that's pretty insane to give away for free on TV. So uh, I, I, I enjoyed Hogan and Sting for what it was. The finish was bad, but it didn't ruin it enough to make it not the segment of the show for me. Yeah, I'll go along with that. I kind of wonder if they would have done this sooner if Luger hadn't have uh, fallen into Eric's lap because, you know, they went to Hogan and Luger basically week two of Nitro. Could that have been Hogan and Sting then? I mean, it's kind of hard to say, but uh, I don't know. Uh, I I have to go with the same thing. Obviously, wrestling-wise, I'm sure Pillman and Guerrero was the better match, but this just meant more. and It was a big deal, and we're basically at the end of Sting's blonde hair streak, so I got to give him a couple segments here before he turns all brunette on me. And ruins my, yeah, uh, my fandom forever. Yeah, he I, Luger said he was he hated to die because it, it it ruined his hair a lot. It took a lot of maintenance to keep his hair that way. So right, um, that's according to Luger. But another thing interesting that I I put down for my notes here is I, it felt like WCW knew that the the show after a pay per view gets that point three bump. So giving Sting and Hogan away for free was a great way to counteract that point three bump and possibly steal the night. So um, I, I wonder if that had something to do with it, just knowing that it was coming off Survivor Series. Plus, it's your go-home show. It's your pay-per-view. So I, I'm wondering if that played a big role in that and why they gave that match away. And we'll move over to the WWF side of things now. And before we get to the post-Survivor Series Raw, we're going to look at the Survivor Series results real quick. But I also wanted to point out that there's a lot of unhappiness among the wrestlers regarding not getting enough dates and not getting pushed properly and not getting used properly. Adam Baum has already quit the company, and that's just a drop ball right there in, in my estimation. Just There may not be anybody who had a better look and more agility at a size like that than Adam Baum that just was misused from beginning to end, and I don't know if there was more to it or, or not, but it just seemed like the click played the politicking there, and I know he cited that too. He just didn't want to play that game. Bam Bam Bigelow, we know he's basically gone here after the Survivor Series as well. Uh, He's looking to go back to Japan or things of that nature. He's been very upset. He was basically forced out of the upper echelon by the click because he was kind of getting associated there with Diesel, if you remember, during his initial babyface run. And I'm not really putting over Bigelow's babyface run. It's been a complete flop uh, from the beginning. But you can't say that when you can't use someone like a Bam Bam Bigelow, there's an issue with your booking versus Bigelow. Is he your top baby face? No. Is he your top heel? Probably not. But we see him go back to ECW and he gets over like hell there. We know what Bigelow's done in the past as part of the WWF, even as a heel, but also, you know, back in his run in the late 80s as well. So I just, it feels like there's a a spot for Bigelow here if you just use him properly. So those are some pretty big names, size and Talent-wise, Adam Bomb, Bigelow, basically gone. Jean-Pierre Lafitte, 
He's out with an injury right now and a surgery, a hernia surgery, but he's also reportedly on the way out. Obviously, he just had issues with the click. Diesel not wanting to do business with him up in Montreal, where basically, believe it or not, because he's a French Canadian, he was selling the gate. Diesel versus Jean-Pierre Lafitte in the main event, and Diesel just didn't want to do the proper business. I'm not jobbing for that guy. Even a count-out finish. So there's another guy unhappy, comma, uh, you know, it is what it is with him. Bob Holly also complained about not getting enough booking dates, and he actually threatened to quit at this point, and the click even stuck up for Holly, I guess. He's, they, I don't know that they necessarily liked him on a personal basis, but I think they just appreciated him as a wrestler, and he kind of kept his mouth shut and did what it was asked of him and, and things of that nature. And so uh, Bob Holly wound up on the Survivor Series pay-per-view, replacing Avatar simply to keep him happy, to keep him in the company, is, is how that whole whole thing came about. So there's a lot of names that are really unhappy here. And a lot of it goes back to the click. And even Bob Holly said in shoot interviews that it was just out of control at this point. Dude, uh, could you imagine this company? If the click wasn't there, like how much probably I I can't say it'd be better off, but you know, guys work harder when they, when they care and they know they're going to get what they deserve. And there's not a bunch of bullshit going on. Guys are going to work harder in an environment where they're going to get, what they deserve based off what they do, not because who likes you and who doesn't like you. These guys are just toying with people's careers and yeah. with no, with no regard. No, I you're mean, right. Bam Absolutely. Face run, Bam Bam's face run was shit because I thought it was good leading into King of the Ring. Uh, Diesel and Bam Bam versus what was the Sid and Tatanka. That's yeah. a pretty decent match on paper. But if you go from that straight into low level, nothing with no feuds, no nothing. Right. Yeah, it's going to flop because <laughs> you went from a main event match on a pay-per-view to nothing. Why Why would people care if you're just going to fall that fast? So it's utterly ridiculous. As a kid, I, I enjoyed Diesel. I enjoyed Razor. I enjoyed Sean's in-ring work. I, I, there's a lot of things that I didn't care for, like the stripping shit that he did during this time. And I, I just didn't care for his attitude. He, he just had a – it is. It came across as a huge ego, and I've always been a Brett guy since – I was a kid, so you got to pick one or the other. You can't have both. It's sad, and it's it's just ridiculous that Vince McMahon would allow three or four dudes to basically control his company and just piss every single person off. And I don't, I don't want to get too far into this because we're kind of going long as it is. But I don't know if you've seen it recently, but Bret Hart mentioned that he got offered to join the Click, and Bret Hart, I, I will. Brett is a lot of things, but I would trust anything that guy says over anyone else just because if you read the beginning of his book, he prefaces it by saying that he recorded like almost every show. Like he would do an audio journal knowing that one day he was going to write a book. So it's all on record. His perspective, but it's on record at that time that it happened. And he said that he got offered to join the clique. He knew the date, time, and where he was at. And Diesel came out and said, no, we never offered Brett that. And Brett shot back like, yeah, I can show you the proof that this is when it happened. I can tell you exactly when and how it happened. And he's like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not toying with people's careers the way you guys did. And I'm not going to counter the market on money when other people deserve it too. So it's just ridiculous. And thankfully, two of them had get the hell out of Dodge, three of them actually, rather relatively soon. So good riddance. Yeah, and they I'm ruined sure the other company. That way. <laughs> they essentially help uh, run the other company out of business eventually you think no. it would have got that bad in the wwf if they stayed like all five of them 
I don't know. I don't think so because I think uh, with all of them in one place, there was enough talent there that they probably could have kept things going for a while because they didn't seem to screw so much with Bret Hart or The Undertaker. Anybody who was a draw, they didn't seem to really screw with. So you would always have those top-tier players. It's all these other guys that were looking for the breadcrumbs that got screwed, the Adam Bombs, the Jean-Pierre Lafitte's, these hard workers, the the Shane Douglases, the you know guys like that. So The dudes with all the talent. <laughs> Yeah, so it's uh, it's unfortunate, and you know I can't yeah. take away from the talent of like Sean and Razor and stuff either, or the kid even. But it's uh, no, I can't either. But backstage politics can really sour you on those guys rather quickly. Yeah, so I just wanted to bring that up and what was going on in the landscape behind the scenes as we go into the Survivor Series, which t- took place on November nineteenth at the U.S. Air Arena in Landover, Maryland. It drew fourteen thousand five hundred sellout, but only twelve five paid, so two thousand people. Got in there for free. It's crazy to think for a pay-per-view. We kick things off with the pre-show dark match. It's the smoking guns over public enemy who are getting a tryout here. Both Nitra or both WCW and WWF were making a play for public enemy at this point. Obviously, they wind up with WCW here at the beginning of 96. It's the return of Mr. Perfect on commentary to kick things off at the pay-per-view. And I'm telling you, man, I marked out like crazy. It came out of nowhere. I don't really know how they... Uh, when they came up with the the contract to re-sign Perfect here, but even Meltzer was shocked when this happened. And the yeah, show it was started- great. I love how they did it on the show, too, how they cut into the arena, and Howard's just like, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Perfect, and then they show him coming out, and then they go to the video package. Yeah. So it's like, oh, here's a surprise for you before we even get to the to the opening video. So Yeah, that happened. Oh, yeah, great stuff. Pumped up beyond also- pumped. <laughs> Oh, yeah, same here, man. And then that jacket he was wearing, oh, classic. <laughs> I love Mr. Perfect, man. So it's the Body Donnas over the underdogs here. It's the team of Skip, Rad, Radford, Tom Pritchard, and the 1-2-3 kid who is replacing Jean-Pierre Lafitte. In reality, Lafitte, like I had mentioned, he's out with hernia surgery, but they sell it here as Ted DiBiase paid Lafitte to take the night off and put the 1-2-3 kid in the match. They get the win here. The eliminations go like this. Bob Holly over Tom Pritchard in 539 with a crossbody off the top. Skip pins Bob Holly with a roll-up immediately afterwards at 545. Rad Radford pins Hakushi in eight and a half minutes by using the tights after the kid kicks Hakushi in the back of the head. Barry Horowitz pins Rad Radford with a half Nelson cradle in 1147 as Radford was doing push-ups. The 1-2-3 kid then also pins Barry Horowitz in 1246 with a knee to the back and a leg drop. Marty Jannetty pins Skip in a phenomenal-looking powerbomb off the top rope at about 15-23. And the 1-2-3 kid winds up pinning Marty Jannetty after Psycho Sid comes to the ringside and drops Jannetty throat first across the top rope. The kid gets the win, and the match goes just over 19 minutes. And we go backstage, and Razor Ramon's been watching the match on the monitor. He can't stand the kid after what transpired on Raw, and the Razor goes berserk, and he grabs a monitor and throws it against the wall, and Razor's pissed off, and the other... Baby faces are trying to calm him down, so they're playing up the Razor and Kid storyline here in between the matches. Uh, we go on. It's a women's match. Bertha Faye, Aja Kong, Lioness Asuka, and Tomoko Wananami taking on women's champion Alundra Blaze, Kyoko Inoue, Saki Hasegawa, and Chaparita Asari. Match only goes 10 minutes. It's a pretty quick in and out here, which is unfortunate because these girls can really work. Blaze pins uh, oh, yeah. Asuka in, in 141 with a German suplex. Aja Kong pins Hasegawa with a back suplex in 355. Then she pins Chaparita Sari with a splash off the ropes. 
and 424. And then Kong, for the third elimination in a row, pins Kyoko Inoue with, uh, she blocks a sunset flip and drops a earthquake butt splash to pin Inoue in about five minutes there. Uh, Alonjo Blaze back in the ring. She starts eliminating the heels, pins Watanabe with a pile driver in 623, pins Bertha Fay with a German suplex into a bridge in 711, and that was also Bertha's swan song, so bye-bye Bertha. And uh, it comes down to Aja Kong and women's champion Alundra Blaze. And Aja beats Blaze with the spinning back fist after uh, and she pins her and gets the win in about 10 minutes there. It was a good little match. Very quick, though. Uh, very rapid-paced fa- uh, eliminations. And did they announce that match for World Rumble 96? Aja Kong and Alundra Blaze, I think it was. Aja Kong. Uh, I can't say. I don't recall that. Uh, that would be interesting to know, though. I kind of, I kind of remember a completely different story. I thought uh, maybe Blaze had been told that they really didn't have the money at this point to support a women's division, and that's kind of the part of the story that's not really told when she jumps to WCW. Is that they really didn't have anything for her, even though it looked like they were setting up the Saja Kong match. Uh, they really didn't have a whole lot for, at least beyond working a pay per view once every three or four months. They didn't really have anything right. for her. That's kind of why she made the jump was she wanted to work and she wanted to get paid more and they kind of make her the bad guy, which I get it with the belt and the garbage can deal. But yeah, Uh, I want to say like in the Royal Rumble 96 program, which is one of the last pay-per-views that had a national program, they have a women's match in it. I think it was London Blaze and Aja Kong. Okay. Or I may have seen it in a a WWF magazine. I'll have to go back and check, but I can, I can figure that out and, and let you know. So the show goes on and we get the fake Bill Clinton dropping down as Bam Bam's pyro explodes and they think that somebody's trying to attack the president in the comedy spot gone wrong. And in the ring, it's gold dust pinning Bam Bam Bigelow with a bulldog after Bigelow misses a charge in the corner. Match goes eight minutes, 19 seconds. This is the end of Bam Bam Bigelow's run in the WWF. The Undertaker returns with a mask now covering his broken orbital bone. Undertaker will team here with Fatu, Henry Goblin, and Savio Vega over King Mabel, Triple H, Jerry Lawler, and Isaac Yankum. Match only goes 14 and a half minutes. Undertaker's entire team survives as the Undertaker finally gets tagged in, and in succession, he pins Jerry Lawler with a tombstone in 12-18, pins Isaac Yankum, the future Kane, his brother, kayfabe, guys, in 12-49 with a tombstone. Then he pins Triple H, and this is a pretty fun spot here where Triple H is on the apron and he chokeslams Helmsley halfway across the ring back into the ring and gets the pin on Helmsley there in 1334. It leaves the entire dark side team against Mabel, but it's Undertaker who wants it Mabel, and Mabel decides to take a count out instead of doing a job here and walks out on the match, leaving poor Sir Moe in the ring to take the final chokeslam from the Undertaker. Mabel takes the count out in the dark side win the match in about 14 and a half minutes there. And then we go into the wild card match. It's Shawn Michaels, Ahmed Johnson, Davey Boy Smith, and Sid against Razor Ramon, Yokozuna, Owen Hart, and Dean Douglas. Michaels pins Douglas, go figure. Douglas is the first one gone with a roll-up in about seven and a half minutes. Razor then pins Sid in 16 minutes, 17 seconds, after Michaels accidentally super kicks Sid, and then Smith even accidentally elbows Sid while Razor's trying to make the cover. So uh, Sid's on the way out there, uh, <laughs> uh, or at least uh, out of the match, and he power bombs Shawn Michaels, and deservedly so, if you ask me. Yeah, because like he hit he hit Sid with his super kick, and he just kind of shrugs shrugs it off. Oh well, yeah, like, oh well, big deal. Darn, no biggie. Well, I eliminated one of my own partners. 
The action goes on as Ahmed Johnson pins Owen Hart with the Tiger Bomb. I think it's still not named the Pearl Rubber Plunge yet. Ahmed gets Owen out of there at 2147. Davy Boy Smith pins Razor Ramon at 2406 with the running power slam after Razor gets involved with an interfering 1-2-3 kid on the apron. Ahmed Johnson winds up pinning Yokozuna with a splash following a super kick from Michaels after Ahmed and Michaels hit a double clothesline on their own partner, Davy Boy Smith, who's actually buddies with Yoko. They had to send Davy Boy out of the ring in order to beat Yoko. Just odd booking here, but I, I guess it kind of makes sense in some way, shape, or form. Ahmed, Shawn Michaels, Davy Boy Smith all wind up surviving this match. And it's to the main event where Bret Hart beats Diesel for the World Heavyweight Championship. Match goes 24 minutes, 51 seconds. Diesel looks like he's going to go for the jackknife here. Maybe eases up on Hitman and makes that mistake, and he pays for it dearly as Bret winds up inside cradling Diesel and getting the win, and Diesel is pissed off immediately after the three count. Diesel gets up, he goes nuts, he starts striking officials, power bombs Bret Hart. Uh, it seems like he, he's turned heel here. We'll find out what happens on Raw. So a big, giant title change. Diesel's been champion for a year. Uh, so we get the big, giant title change. Babyface versus babyface match. It almost seems like we're coming out of this with a heel turn by Diesel. Very curious to see how it plays out on Raw. Yeah, really good show. Survivor Series 95 is pretty entertaining. I think it's an underrated uh, show, I I feel. Absolutely. Absolutely. A lot of great action. There's a lot of good dudes, a lot of good workers, especially in that opening match. The wild card match is good. The women's match is just awesome. Really, the only match that kind of sucked was Bam Bam and Gold Dust. Yeah. But everything else was really, really good. And I think the way Meltzer describes that match is they just didn't click. But it wasn't for the fact that they didn't give effort. So they did try. It just didn't really gel. It's the following night now on Raw, November 20th, and we're live for the first time in like four weeks. We're in Richmond, Virginia at the Coliseum. We open the show with clips from the Survivor Series, and we head to the ring. It's the newly heel 1-2-3 kid accompanied by his new manager, Ted DiBiase, taking on Hakushi. Uh, these guys last fought, at least last time I remember them fighting, was at SummerSlam, only it's a different dynamic here this time. They've switched sides. Hakushi, the baby face, and the kid is the heel. Fun little match, getting over kid's heel uh, heel now. I Like I had pointed out last week, I thought he was great as a lightning kid, but I was still sad the 1-2-3 kid never got that big face run. Maybe that intercontinental level face run. He just always seemed to be teetering like Vince never wanted to pull that trigger. Whatever, he's a heel now, I gotta get used to it. And Razor Ramon calls in during the match and trash talks the kid from the phone. What a tough guy. Finishes DiBiase push Hakushi off the top rope and kid nails him with a spin kick to get the win in about nine minutes. What'd you think of the match? I love Hakushi and these guys had a great match at SummerSlam. Really good stuff. Hakushi's offense was awesome for the time. A shame he kind of got nowhere. I think they even talk about how he's getting more and more Americanized. Uh, he didn't need it. Just let the dude go out there and work. You ain't going to do nothing with him anyway. Why ruin him? But yeah, I, I thought the kid was better as a heel. This was a fun match. A great way to open the show, I thought. A lot of fast-paced action here. So Marty Jannetty, the little engine that could, he just thinks he can. He thinks he can. And he keeps getting screwed. First, he's screwed in the Battle Royal to get an Intercontinental title shot by Davey Boy and Owen. Now here at Survivor Series, he's screwed again as it looks like he has the 1-2-3 kid beat when his buddy Sid comes down and screws Janetti, letting the kid get the win here. So Janetti wants back at the kid, but he's held back uh, at this point in the show. He wants revenge for the Survivor Series, and uh, he's still going to try to get it here. As Jerry Lawler interviews Ted DiBiase and the kid at ringside. Lawler actually shakes hands with the kid, tells him how proud he is of him for, for turning heel. 
DiBiase gets on the microphone. He taunts Marty Jannetty about being eliminated at Survivor Series. And that brings Marty back out. And like 10 feet behind Marty comes Sid Vicious. Or I'm sorry, Psycho Sid. He follows Marty right out to the ring. They had to have been standing in gorilla together, I would have to imagine. I don't know how Marty didn't see a uh, six foot 10 guy standing right behind him, but so Marty's out there and I'll give Sid credit. He doesn't attack Marty from behind. He actually walks around Janetti's back, gets in his face and tells Janetti, if you want to get to the kid, you got to go through me. Basically it winds up Sid and the kid attacking Janetti and Marty taking a power bomb on the floor. Fun segment. Yeah. Nice angle. I'm interested to see a Marty and kid match. I'm sure that'd be really good. And that, that's kind of what they're building towards here. Sid's just doing all the dirty work, but the match is actually Marty and the kids, so sign me up for that one. And, well, it's Slam Jam time again with Doc Hendricks, and now he's pimping the In Your House December pay-per-view, and he announces two big matches for the show already. We already knew that the WWF champion, who is now Bret Hart, would take on Davey Boy Smith. Davey Boy obviously granted another title shot. So we know one of the matches... And in your house is the world title match between Brett and Davey. And last time they met in such a high-profile match was SummerSlam 92 for the Intercontinental title when Davey Boy beat Brett. So they make sure to show a clip of that here. And then followed by a tape promo from Jim Cornette and Davey Boy Smith reminding Brett that Davey's beat him before. So job well done there. And then the other match announced for In Your House, Henry Godwin taking on Triple H in a hog pin match. So In Your House is already shaping up to be a fun one. Uh, That's a great main event. Uh, Brett and Davy Boy. Oh, I thought you were talking about the Hogpin match. I was going to tell you that wasn't the main event. Great no, match. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fun match. Different, for sure. I was intrigued with seeing that. But again, I never really got the in your houses. So um, missed out until later on in life. But yeah, good stuff. So as we go to commercial or come back from commercial, I'm not even really sure. We see HBK and Diesel backstage chatting it up. And I wonder who they're talking about sabotaging next. I'm guessing that's what they were doing anyway. It's Barry Dedensky in the aisleway selling jean jackets. And I just want to let everyone know that, no, in 1995, jean jackets weren't cool. They hadn't been cool since the 80s. So I don't know what the hell they were going for here in the mid-90s with jean jackets. But I had to let people know that we're born after this era that, no, jean jackets weren't in in 1995. It's certainly not with wrestlers plastered all over the back of them. Yeah, I don't think I'd really want one of those. Uh, they're They're... They're worth a pretty penny now just as a collector's item. Again, a lot of this stuff, it looks like trash for 95, but man, I wish I bought some of it. That stuff is worth some pretty pretty good money. That's because nobody was buying it. Yeah, they're rare to get. I saw somebody trying to sell the WrestleMania 12 jean jacket with like the logo on the side and then the match on the back between Brett and Sean for like 600 bucks. I shall pass. Same here. Back to the ring, it's Savio Vega taking on Skip the Body Donna. Skip jumps Savio, and it's good stuff from both guys really early on. Great bumping by Candido, and these guys are moving at 100 miles an hour, and it becomes clear why rather quickly into the matches. Out of nowhere, about two minutes into the match, both guys seem to just completely slow down, almost like they're looking for something, and they are. Here comes Diesel in street clothes walking his way to the ring. And Sonny trips up Savio Vega in the ring and Skip charges at Vega. Vega winds up backdropping Skip to the floor as Diesel's walking around ringside. Skip stands up in comical fashion, goes nose to chest, well, barely nose to chest with Diesel. And Diesel pie-faced Skip back to the floor like a job guy. I just, I hate the way they use some of these guys. But the match winds up being a no contest in about two and a half minutes. 
I didn't like Savio being used in this way. I felt like he was too high up on the totem pole to just let this go. Let some guy just interfere in this match and just walk away. And Savio's basically an afterthought here. And really, I felt bad for Skip just being treated like a job guy here and, and knowing what Sean was doing with Sonny. I, I don't know if he was doing it at this point yet or not, but I don't know. Just it's the click. Yeah, that's all you can really say. Um, I'm with you. Savio felt up to this point like he was protected his whole run up to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, not Quang, not included, but uh, from Savio Vega, he he was yeah. good and protected up until this point. And then for him to just be a part of this, I'd almost I, I get a Hakushi was in that match with uh, Kid at the Survivor Series, but Savio against the Kid would have been cool. And then Skip and Hakushi here. I mean, because they're both kind of low-level guys. But Savio being on Undertaker's team one night, and then the next night he's getting forgotten about because of a Diesel promo. And that's what this is all about. It's Diesel shooting by uh, interrupting a match. And he's walking around ringside. He tosses Skip out of the way. He's looking for the house mic. He gets on the mic. This is the I'm back speech, by the way, for anybody wondering. Diesel makes it clear he's not apologizing for what he did to Brett at Survivor Series. In fact, he says he's slept the best he's slept in a year, and he even saw a smile on his face for the first time in a year. Diesel looks at Vince McMahon on commentary and another shoot, tells Vince McMahon that he turned him into a corporate puppet and that the marketing people had turned him corporate and PC. Diesel's not a politically correct kind of guy, in case you didn't know. So Diesel's basically venting here is what's going on in a shoot, a work shoot. And he announces that Big Daddy Cool is back, noting it was the same guy that the fans saw back at the 94 Royal Rumble. He winds up putting some sunglasses on here and finishes by saying he only cares about family and friends, and that includes Shawn Michaels. And the fans wearing his black gloves, he'll continue to slap their hands, but nobody else. So what a way to market shit. I'll give you guys five, but only if you wear my glove. Go buy my gloves and I'll, I'll give you a high five. Clever marketing, but just shitty at the same time. Of course, it's Vince McMahon. But yeah, this was, uh, I don't know. The delivery wasn't very good, I thought. I mean, what he said was fine. I just wasn't buying it. I don't know. Looking back on it, Diesel wasn't a very good promo. And this one wasn't very good. It seemed like he got lost a little bit. It dragged. He had a lot of long pauses where he's thinking about what he's saying and it just didn't, it just didn't flow again. The content and the message was cool, but the, uh, the delivery sucked. It's like the opposite of what Lex Luger did after, uh, <laughs> turning on steamboat at clash seven, where he cut that awesome promo on the main event afterward or whatever it was main event or Saturday night afterwards. It was okay. This was huge. When it originally aired, you didn't see things like this. Guys didn't interrupt matches. Guys didn't cut shoot promos. Guys never acknowledged Vince McMahon as anyone in charge of anything, uh, certainly by this point. So these were all no-nos. And then to basically address that I'm kind of a heel, but I'm still, my buddy's still my buddy, which was weird. You didn't, you know, you either, you typically, you're either a baby face or a heel. If you turned heel, you turned on everyone. The only thing that I remember stuck out to me is like weird was the whole black glove line. Even back then I was like, so I got to go buy this guy's gloves in order for him to give me a five? Screw you. But other than that, and I do see what you're talking about. A lot of pausing, pretty slow. Uh, it's almost like he's trying to think of what to say to some degree. I think he knows what he wants to say. The delivery could have been a little better here, but if I go back in time, I bought it hook, line, and sinker when it originally aired. 
just so many dynamics about this were different, very real. We didn't get that shoot stuff, especially in the WWE at this time. Definitely a different turn, and it's not the last time they take this turn on this episode. It was different, and it was like he turned heel, but he didn't turn heel. It was just a very different style, I guess, of, of WWF booking. So I bought into this, and uh, you know, it became a famous line, the uh, line at the end where he says, I'm back! And uh, basically, you know, the old Diesel's back, the badass Diesel's back. He doesn't stay around very long, uh, but he's no. back for now. And we, the camera actually follows Diesel for whatever reason, because they never do this any other time. But the camera follows Diesel all the way backstage. We see him run into Shawn Michaels, and they kind of embrace before Diesel leaves the arena. So that explains where he's at later in the show. You know, it's funny, though. When he walks out, you can kind of see him. It looks like he's heading towards a, a, a semi-truck. Well, so, he's Diesel. Uh, I wonder if that was. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So I'm just curious <laughs> if that was on purpose or just a coincidence, one of those things. But good production. Well, if they're trying to sell him as a badass, I hope it was just a coincidence. <laughs> that's no lie. I, I thought this promo had to be done. Great story. I did feel bad for the guys in the match, especially Savio, we pointed out. But um, I felt like this had to be done to further the Diesel character, what it evolves into right now. It sucked for Savio. It sucked for Skip. Really sucked for Savio. I remember buying it at the time, and I didn't mind it here. It doesn't it obviously doesn't have the impact with with me here twenty five years later that it did back then. But I bought it back then, so decent little segment. Yeah, I mean, yeah it wasn't bad, and it, it was good. I just I just wish his delivery was just a little bit better. I think it would have been more meaningful, more impactful if he was able to. Because like, I mean, dude, you knew this was coming. You had all day to think about this. Go out there and knock it out of the park. Don't be slow and methodical like your wrestling matches. Just go out there, hammer it home, and, and go and be done with it. And he just didn't really do that. So it kind of felt flat. Now, back then, I'm sure I enjoyed the hell out of it. Like, oh, wow, this is different. But now it's just, it seems a little flat to me. But that's just being nitpicky. And next week on Raw, it's The Undertaker taking on Kama. What are they trying to do? Drive people away? Why would you announce this in advance? The only way Raw's winning the ratings war next week is because they announce the return of the Brother Love Show. Yes, brothers! Brothers and sisters, yes! It's Brother Love! Steve, I love you, yes! <laughs> I was surprised to hear it. I was like, the Brother Love, really? Oh. I, I, I know he pops up every now and then on these random Raws, but it never extends past... It just never stays. So, um, well, I'll tell you what. He disappeared after the Ultimate Warrior segment prior to WrestleMania Seven, and of course, not too long after that, he was actually let go and didn't return until after SummerSlam '92. So he was gone for about a year, just over a year. Uh, but he had come back and worked behind the scenes. This is the actual return of Brother Love. This is the first time he's been back since 1991. Yeah, when they first try to actually return him, we on a weekly show here, the Brother Love Show. He'll it doesn't last very long, but. It starts here in November, and it'll, it'll continue into December at the very least because that's where we, we meet the ringmaster, and we'll get that, that when we get to it. But, uh, yeah, so for Brother Love's very first guest, it's, it's Bret Hart. So it's somebody he knows from, from years past anyway. So I can't wait to see that. When I, when I saw this, for the first, I was a gigantic Brother Love fan. I lived and died by the Brother Love show. So when I realized that my favorite wrestler, the Warrior, had taken Brother Love out, I, was very, I, I didn't know what to do with myself. Because I was, it was like, shame on you, warrior. But 
Yeah, so <laughs> I, I was so pumped that Brother Love is returning to my TV set. And so that's uh, that's the plug for next week's Raw. I know Brother Love's coming back. I don't know what that means for the fans here in 1995. All joking aside, a very uneventful way to promote next week's show. Bret Hart in a promo and Kama versus The Undertaker, which we had seen plenty enough of over the summer. So Raw's not sounding too hot for next week. Definitely not. But it is Undertaker's TV return, so that should help a little bit as far as actual television and not pay-per-view. So that, that should help, but we'll see. That's what we're here for. And it's main event time, and what a main event it is. It's Shawn Michaels taking on Owen Hart. Really good TV match, really good wrestling. Obviously, I don't really need to tell you that. It's Michaels versus Owen. Owen eventually takes over on the offense, tries a superplex, but Shawn falls on top for a near fall. Shawn makes the big kip up and come back, the forearm, the flying elbow. Uh, but Owen comes back with an enziguri, which knocks Shawn a little silly. But Sean's back up. He blocks the sharpshooter with the thumbs to the eyes. He winds up clotheslining Owen out of the ring, and Sean skins the cat back inside. And as he's posing and celebrating, he collapses, Steve. He just falls to his knees, holds his head, and collapses, falls flat on his face. Something didn't go right there. And uh, the match basically comes to a halt there about 12 minutes in. Yeah, so you want to go first, or do you want me to go first? <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't know what you're going to say, so I, I guess I'll go first. I want to get this out of the way because uh, I remembered it. You know, I, I can relive it through my mind from then. And I can also appreciate it for what it is now, basically looking back on this. Because this is a segment that was, when it was done at that time, it, nothing like that had ever been done before. Let's make that clear right away. But at the same time, it was just a huge angle, period. There was nothing really going on in the WWF. And the kid had just turned heel. But other than that, there was real no big angle going on. You have Yeti exploding out of ice blocks over on WCW. And you, you know, the kid, like I said, it just turned heel. But other than that, you really had no major angle. So something like this, and you'd never seen it before on top of that, it was uh, different to say the very least. So Sean collapses mid-match out of nowhere. And I don't mean your normal bump uh, because he's in, he's in control. He's on the offense at this point. And he just falls over flat on his face and the crowd, slow, they're popping like crazy for Sean. He's doing his offense, and slowly the crowd quiets down as something's gone awry. Something doesn't make sense. Sean falls on his face, and he's not moving. He's out cold, it, it appears, and he's just laying there. And Owen Hart's on the outside. He's not selling. He's beginning to talk to Cornette on the outside. Earl Hebner walks over to Sean, kind of kicks, kicks at his foot to see if he's going to move. He looks like he, he turns to start counting Owen Hart out multiple times, but stops before he even reaches one because it's almost like, um, wait a minute, are we still pretending here or, or is something really happening? And j just the realism at that point, I really bought into it. And, I, and as huge as this was and, and as much as I loved it at the time, I really haven't seen this angle since. Like I probably played it out over the course of the next few weeks on my tape, but I probably haven't watched it in at least 24 years going back to 96. So I was reliving this for the first time in a very long time. And I just thought the realism of what they were doing for the fact that this had never been done before was a really good job based because you just kind of compartmentalize everyone. What Owen's yeah. doing, Owen's looking concerned, like what the hell's going on? Like Owen's no longer playing Owen the heel. He's not, he's not running in the ring to go beat on Sean. Cause he's laying on the mat. He's like, what the hell's going on here? J Jerry Lawler randomly just mumbles really quietly. 
like what's what's going on or, or I can't really remember what he said, but it's something along those lines. It's kind of asking Vince what's going on. We got Earl Hebner checking on him. Cornette's whispering to Owen. Owen's looking concerned. He has Owen has a concerned look on his face, almost like he wants to come over himself and check on Sean. And Vince McMahon out of nowhere just takes his headset off and you hear this bzzz, like humming noise, like he'd unplugged the headset to get off the headset. And Vince McMahon never came to anyone's aid. And we see Vince climbing to the ring as we go to this commercial break with a hush over the crowd and a hush over the announcer's table as well. And we come back from our first commercial break and there's no commentary for the final seven minutes of the show. Something else that you just, you never had dead air back then Uh, to get over the realism. There's no commentary. There's EMTs when we return. They're checking on Sean. They're giving him oxygen. Vince is talking with them. He's discussing that Sean was okay last night, referring to the pay-per-view. Uh, we get a doctor in there. I hear Vince ask, are, are you a doctor? Yes, I'm a doctor. There's officials start coming out. J.J. Dillon's in the ring. Rene Goulet, Dave Hebner, uh, Jerry Lawler. The camera even cuts to Jerry Lawler, who's walking around ringside with his arms open, looking for answers, like what the hell's going on even even Lawler, the evil heel who laughs at it. He just laughed at Marty Jannetty getting powerbombed on the floor 45 minutes ago. So he's even cons- like, what the hell's going on? This felt so real. Pat Patterson's down speaking to Sean, asking him, are you okay, Sean? Are you okay? Uh, you know, just stay there. Relax. Don't move. The doctor's starting to tell people he's okay. He's coming around. But Sean's got his eyes open by the time the show ends. But he's just blinking. He's not really responding. He's not really moving. And then the show fades to black without any commentary. And you don't know what the hell just happened. Was this real? Was this fake? And there, you have no answer. And you've got to wait a week or at least till the weekend program to hear any update on Shawn Michaels. I, I love I love this angle. Again, I, I said it earlier. I'm not a huge Shawn Michaels guy, but I, I still, like you said, I can remember this from my childhood. I remember watching this and I was like, what the heck is going on? Like what in the world just happened? Like he was, like you said, he was doing the offense. He was in it and um, he just skinned the cat and was posing. And he, he was, if he looked fine and all of a sudden he just fell over and it felt very real and authentic. And um, everything after that was just perfectly done. And we all know it's wrestling. It's an angle. If it was if it was real or, or things like that, they're gonna cut the feed. They're not gonna let you see it, or oh, they'll go to commercial, or they'll take you like we see what happened at Over the Edge. They just go right to the commentary table and be done. So I, I never really thought it was real. I was just curious, like, okay, this is bad. Is he okay? What's going on? I can't wait till next week's show. My my issue is, and we've talked about him a lot on this, this episode, but. He, he has a lot to say about this uh, this war that's brewing. But the Melts here, he like just shits all over this because he felt it was in very poor, poor taste and that it looked like Sean was really bad off and that the majority of his callers and stuff thought the same. Uh, I was like, I don't, I don't buy that. I'm not buying that this was in poor taste. This was just a cliffhanger on a TV show. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, you want to say that it's, it's a work, but you also want it to be real. And Meltzer feels like he, he blurs that line quite a bit. And he, he, he just picks which side he wants to argue. And uh, this was just a cliffhanger. It was like a season finale of your favorite TV show. And you had to wait six months to find out what's going on. In this case, it was just a week. 
And I, I was naive as a nine-year-old and thought things were real, but I never thought his life was in jeopardy or anything like that. I mean, it's wrestling. If something bad happened, they're going to pull away from it. They're not going to continue to show you him in the ring. Like, you get that. You understand that it's fake in that sense. So if something like this happens, you know it's a work for the most part. Yeah, I mean, um, some, the, the thing is, is nothing like this had ever happened at this point. And so yeah, this felt very realistic. I know it fooled a lot of people. Uh, I considered myself fairly smart at this point. I knew everything was a work. I mean, not a new how everything worked exactly, but I, I knew enough. I knew yeah, exactly. of the observer at this point. And um, I can, I can honestly and uh, openly say that when this happened, I, I took it as legit. I certainly did. Uh, they'd never done anything like this before. Um, just the seriousness and way, the way the announcers treated it, the way there was no commentary, the certain lines that some of the guys were saying while this was going on. The fact that, he had collapsed in the middle of offense. That's just wasn't somebody had never done that before. You didn't collapse while you, you were making your big comeback. Imagine if uh, Hulk Hogan, you know, had hit the big boot and he was going off the road for the leg drop and fell over and died. I, it's just like, it doesn't make sense. I think uh, it probably depends on your take, I guess. I mean, I can see it from both ways. But uh, yeah, I, I remember when it happened, I was extremely concerned because at that point in time, that was probably my favorite worker. And I'm sure when I when when the show went off, I was very concerned going to bed that night. As silly as that sounds, as a teenager, but you know, I mean, <laughs> I lived and died by my Monday Night War on Mondays, and so you know, I'm sure that was the talk yeah. of the school school the next day. At least my buddies that watched wrestling anyway, everybody watched it by yeah. the time the you know the Attitude Era come and, and NWO and things. But at this point, nobody really talked about it. it was kind of hush hush. You know, you had your couple it's buddies, that, yeah. So you you'd go to school and find the guys that watched it. Oh, you watched that? Okay, I could talk to you about it on Tuesday morning. So, right. Yeah, um, I, I just I don't know. I, I just feel like it's a it's another hill for Meltzer to die on that I just don't necessarily agree with. I mean, until you know, I, I mean, I wouldn't say anything about it. Like, who cares? If it's a work, then it doesn't matter. Do what you can to get ratings. I don't have any issues with that. We've seen worse. Hell, somebody in 2020 got shot at a wedding on Impact Wrestling. I mean, come on. So I can't wait to, I would love to see what he has to say about that. But um, I, I, like I said, I, I did believe it as a, hopefully he was okay, but him saying like, well, you shouldn't be doing things like this because it's very cheap and very second rate and not a way to get rating. Like you're, how far are you going to push it? If you're going to do this stuff, how far are you going to push it? And we know how far they push it a year later with Pillman. So I get that sense, but it just bothers me that he wants to shit on stuff that, yeah, maybe poor taste, but again, it's TV. What what else? It's just TV. Yeah, but I mean, I saw it was a really, really well done angle. Everyone did their parts so Absolutely. well. And having no background to go off of, uh, no prior angles like this to study from and, and evolve and, and make it better. Like this is your first shot, and I think everybody in all of their parts did an excellent job. So uh, that said, we'll quote uh, quote a few lines here from Demeltz. He said, "WWF countered WCW's program with its most daring and, in some eyes, its most galling angle in years, playing off Shawn Michaels' legit injury a few weeks back after being pulled out of a car and assaulted outside a Syracuse nightclub. The WWF had Michaels simply collapse in the ring in the midst of a hot main event match with Owen Hart." and stay there the remainder of the show, teasing either a stroke or brain aneurysm. 
WWF personnel and EMTs looked concerned and gave him oxygen for the last seven minutes of the show. The angle was convincing enough that from our reports, the majority who attended the show live believed it wasn't an angle. And initially, those live believed it was an angle, but as it played up stronger, most seemed to believe it was real. So it fooled most of the people in the crowd, which you could tell. It was a pretty damn quiet hush over the crowd once Sean laid there for... You hear a pin drop. Yeah, once, once Owen kind of was like, what's going on? Vince McMahon got in the ring, and Lawler's walking around like he he's doesn't know what the hell's going on. I, I think they really sold the crowd live. Uh, the crowd live had never seen anything like that either. So uh, I thought it was just a really well-done angle, personally. I thought it was a good job, and I agree with you. It's just weekly episodic TV storytelling here. What's to come of Shawn Michaels next? It wasn't, uh, you know, half the Von Erics are dead, so let's have Fritz go out there and have a heart attack. It's a little bit of a different situation than this here uh, with Shawn Michaels. I thought it was very unique, very different, very real. I think they tried harder in 1995 than they do now to make shit feel real because they did a great job. And uh, overall, man, Raw was filled with shoots, and I use air quotes there, uh, a new direction for sure with the company. Uh, Raw was really good. Um, they're they're really trying to do something good after that post-Survivor Series show um, just because they figured they do get that bump from a post-pay-per-view, so they might as well go all out to keep those viewers. But, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, man. I, I thought it was definitely very real and very authentic and just very unique and different for the time. And everybody did a, a phenomenal job doing their part. So I, I loved it. And I still remember it. And that, that's how you can tell it's a decent angle or a good angle. And I, I thought they did a really good job of playing it up. The Syracuse stuff, it, it probably gets overblown how terrible or how bad it really was. But they – kind of fell in their lap because if that didn't happen I, I don't know what would happen like we would not be here uh as far as the collapse goes you could still be intercontinental champ and kind of just stuck there but it kind of fell in their lap and then they shot this angle after weeks of getting beat up by big guys like yoko and stuff like that at the survivor series and you had a decent payoff for that injury a stroke or a brain aneurysm really Meltzer, you're gonna go there <laughs> yeah i mean it was a it was a fun background if you're a fan and you're just thinking in your mind like a fan you're sitting there and trying to do the math how did this happen if, if you're taking this as a real uh collapse uh, how did this happen and you go back and he was attacked by the thugs if you go back to survivor series he got razor's edged he got power bombed he took a yokozuna leg drop i mean he took a bunch of finishers from these big guys then he turns around wrestles the next night and gets that enziguri to the back of the head and he collapses, and you just kind of start adding it all together yourself as a fan. Oh, my God, all these things added up, and this guy's, you know, something terrible has happened here. And you're basically grasping to wait and see what's going to happen. And so for my segment of the night, it has to be Shawn Michaels versus Owen. Great match. And then the entire aftermath is just phenomenal. Yeah, it's not even a question. <laughs> like I said, the impact that that's – angle had where you can still remember it vividly 25 years later that tells you everything you need to know about how well they did here on this night and the ratings are in and even though the wwf had overall by far 
the superior show and coming out of a pay-per-view which typically gets a 0.3 boost still Hulk Hogan versus Sting wins it for the night for WCW WCW won the night with the Hogan Sting match by drawing a 2.5 rating and a 3.6 share to the WWF's 2.3 rating and 3.3 share so Hogan and Sting beat out a post-pay-per-view Raw, which typically gets that .3 boost, as I mentioned. But that's kind of a big deal because, hey, man, it's it's Hogan and Sting. But still, if you look at the ratings on both sides, it's still lower than, than your typical ratings. So while Nitro wins, and I'm sure they'll take the win, uh, it's not really the the outcome they were looking for uh, ratings-wise with, with Hogan and Sting. Hogan just is not drawing. Yeah, I mean, it makes you wonder if he was in WWF at this time with Vince pushing him and knowing what to do with him and protecting him. I think that was the beauty of Hogan during my childhood is that he wasn't on TV every week, so he never got stale. Yeah, his big matches and his pay-per-view matches, if you watch it now where you see him all the time, you just watch it back-to-back there. They're pretty repetitive and pretty boring and stale, but back then they just were so far spread apart that you never he never got old. And now you're pushing him out there week after week after week where that shit's going to get old real quick. And I, I give him credit for trying to evolve a little bit with his tweener gimmick, but he's taking it so far ridiculous, like with the Phantom of the Opera mask and a damn sword like he's Highlander or something and a cape and all this stupid hokey shit that wouldn't even work in 1985, let alone 95. It's just not working. Uh, that return on investment is probably pretty damn low. Yeah, and uh, DeMeltz writes... Neither figure can be considered successful. The Hogan-Sting dream match drew a lower number than the Flair-Anderson cage match, which shows even with the best match possible, Hogan has no juice left to have a major impact on ratings. Well, DeMeltz would prove to be wrong there with the whole NWO thing, but that's neither here nor there right now. I see what his point is. And he says, Nevertheless, WCW's Nitro is geared more toward beating the WWF and as long as that happens, it really doesn't matter what the numbers are. It's cause for celebration in WCW's camp. The WWF coming off the pay-per-view with the world title change and a diesel turn tease at the end, only doing a 2.3 for a live show is outright disastrous. And I I tend to agree there. Uh, basically, WCW put what should have been a, on paper its ultimate never-seen-before match, Hogan versus Sting, to counter the WWF going live during the sweeps time. Uh, one day after a pay-per-view show, nonetheless, in which it was going to switch the title. So they switched the belt. It looked like Diesel had turned heel, and they still didn't draw a rating the next night on Raw. The general belief was the impact of Hogan versus Sting was lessened by the weak build-up for the match. Needless to say, I'd have to agree there uh, from the previous week. So terrible job promoting the match, but just both shows didn't do what you would have expected here based on what they both were coming out of. You're going into a Hogan-Sting match. Raw's coming out of Survivor Series. Neither one of them. It just seemed like a bad week for ratings in general. Yeah, I'd be interested to know what the Monday night game was on this night and what they did. Because uh, if there's a good football game, it's going to take away from that, that wrestling audience. Even though it's consistently there in that three to, you know, two and a half, three range weekly, uh, good football is going to top anything. So uh, I'd be curious to know what that game was. Yeah, definitely disappointing for both ends. Not really. I don't know what happened with WWF here. I, I just think Hogan and Sting kind of took the momentum away. But 
and it all goes to show like did people buy the pay-per-view diesel's not really a draw that sort of stuff plays into this so you, if you want to dig down that rabbit hole that's what you got to look at yeah and uh so nitro wins in the ratings not really successful ratings but they still win nonetheless you would think that anything involving hulk hogan versus sting should win but the real winner here for me has to be raw uh the diesel shoot Hakushi versus the kid was okay. It wasn't SummerSlam level good, but it was okay. I enjoyed the Genetti powerbomb segment, the angle outside the ring. And then, of course, you know, the Owen and Sean match and then the collapse segment on the, at the end of the show. Just Raw was uh, leaps and bounds better than Nitro here. Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> uh, I know people probably want to hear us argue and things like that. But, I mean, when you have an uh, infamous angle, I should say, not necessarily iconic, uh, like Shawn Michaels collapse, and we all know what it leads to, and this was the springboard for that. There's no way that's not winning. I don't care what Nitro had. Hogan and Sting was decent for what it was, but again, no build. Nobody cared. Clearly, the ratings weren't there for it. Yeah, not many people cared. So I mean, it was it was just there. It was just a match to stop them from getting a good rating, and that's not how you book stuff. So yeah, raw hands down. And Raw seems to be consistently getting better. I know a lot of people trash 95. You can get through the first eight or nine months. I mean, ten you got months. some decent TV. <laughs> yeah, 10 months. You got some decent TV. <laughs> if you can get um, first of the 10 months of a year, you can get some decent TV there at the end of it. There's some decent stuff in between, but yeah, for the most part, it does pick up towards end of 96. Yeah, yeah Nitro's has been very hit or miss. Some weeks it's great. Some weeks it's terrible. Some weeks it's uh, a little of both. So it's uh, hard reading Nitro. It's, it feels like there's no real plan, booking plans there. It's just wherever, whatever they're going to yeah. do. I will say the one thing about Nitro is the production and the look and the feel oh, of the show always, yeah. always is always top good. notch. Yeah, uh, and it's better than Raw every week. But it's what happens inside the ring that matters. And um, Raw's kicking butt lately. Oh, absolutely. And guys, I know we ran a little longer than usual with this show, but I kind of expected that going in, given this is the fallout of the Survivor Series. And then on top of that, obviously, the, the collapse angle with Sean and the Diesel shoot promo and things of that nature, Sting versus Hogan. So I thought this might go a little longer than usual, if, what you guys are accustomed to. But we had to get it all in, man. And it's all about getting the, the quality of the show over and, and discussing everything as needed. And I thought that was uh, very important to discuss some of these segments at length. And so, Steve, man, well, is, I'm telling you, man, this has uh, been a blast. I was going to say, it is, it is the battles within. So, yes. if it goes long, it goes long. <laughs> yeah, these are these are the battles, for certain. And, uh, I mean, it's been a blast, though, man. Uh, what are we now? Six episodes and 12 episodes of Nitro in the books? Crazy. Three months worth of Nitro already down. Uh, it's crazy to think that. Wow. But, yeah, man, it's just uh, another good time, and we'll be back again next week, which will be Christmas week. Holy cow, Christmas week's next week. Jeez. Uh, with Episode 7, as we see the fallout from World War Three, where the Yeti gets thawed out, according to Tony Schiavone anyway, and uh, a whole lot more. We're going to see the fallout from the Shawn Michaels incident as well. So, uh, Steve, man, I appreciate you being along for the ride once more here on Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. Absolutely, man. It was my pleasure. I had a blast again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, these shows are so fun and so easy to take notes on, not just because of my memory of the shows, but they just seem to flow pretty fast, at least yeah. as long as they're an hour long anyway. So for as long <laughs> as they're an hour long, we're definitely going to keep rocking out two of each every week, two Nitros, two Raws, so you can guarantee two more of each next week. 
And uh, we'll see you guys next week for the special Christmas edition of Monday Warfare, The Battles Within. <laughs>